All right, let's get this kicked off. Welcome, listeners. And there's the extent of my piss poor Stanley impression for wow. today. Yeah. Welcome, listeners. You do it, douche. Welcome, listeners. Okay, uh, give me more. I, I, what, what else should I say? <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Excelsior. Welcome to... God, I've got a cold. This is awful. Welcome to Cinema Excelsior. Patrick, you want to you wanna lead it up? <clears throat> Welcome, true believers, to Cinema Excelsior. You sound like a vaudevillain. <laughs> That's basically what he sounds Go like. Go smoke a hundred cigarettes and come back. <laughs> yeah. Cinema oh. Excelsior. Oh. Well, I guess I'll have to try to... Cinema Excelsior. <laughs> Could we get Louis Armstrong out of here? <laughs> yeah. I see trees of green. When you right. walk through the garden, this is you gotta watch on. your back. This is Patrick, Patrick, you, you need you need to stop trying to bring focus to this endeavor. This is true. It's not gonna work. Yeah. That's this is why we're cutting episodes up. Alright, let's All talk right. about yes. that movie. So, welcome to Cinema Excelsior, the show where we uh, criticize, critique, uh, other words that begin with crit, uh, the <laughs> films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Your esteemed panel for the day, uh, moving from left to right. First we have <laughs> Daniel Watson-Jones. Say hi, dude. Hi, dude. Hey, you're so clever. Mr. Watson-Jones tonight will be playing the part of memorable Spider-Man villain Fusion. Okay. Fusion, <laughs> as you all know, is two twins born with dwarfism, one of whom was a scientist, one of whom was a janitor, who were fused together by radiation oh and became God. a villain for some reason. And the basis of the, the film Goodwill Hunting? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Fusion. Is that spelled weirdly in any like way? Are there any Z's nope. in there? Nope, just lazy old fusion. Well, Some ways that's less lazy than uh, spelling it with weird Z's. Yeah. Well, talk about lazy. Here, here's one. Uh, to do just digital right, we have Derek Long. Say hi, Derek. Hello, listeners. Derek Long tonight will be playing the part of Stegron. Stegron was Dr. Kurt Connor's Please. assistant. Please tell me he's part Stegosaurus. I remember this guy. He is Dr. Kurt Connor's assistant, who injected himself with Connor's lizard formula, expecting different results, but got the same results. Wow. That's what you get when you pay teaching assistants shit. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> oh, so bitter laughter. Bitter. So he is part Stegosaurus. That's yes, what yes, I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> to his digital right, we have Nick Bester. All right. Yes, hi. Hello, children. <laughs> Nick is playing the part of the Tri Sentinel, who is wait what? for it. Wow, three <laughs> Sentinels oh, that combine into one and hate Spider-Man for some reason. It has to do with Loki. It's complicated. To his digital right, we have Patrick Regan. Patrick will be playing the part of the Freak tonight. The freak is a drug addict who accidentally injected himself with a serum that transformed him into a skinless monster <laughs> after mistaking it for crystal meth. I'm just impressed with myself that mistake? for knowing two out of four of those bad guys. You'll, you'll know the fifth one. Um, I'm Stephen Claypool, and I'm Mr. Negative because I'm really down on this film. 
Ah, we've uh, we've scraped the bottom of the rogues barrel tonight, which is well. We've got another movie left to uh, do for Spider Man. So oh, that'll yeah. be uh, we oh. have three more Spider Mans. Oh, that's true. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. At some point, we will eventually get to yeah the uh, <laughs> the amazing yeah. versions. Yes, we may yeah. have four by the time we get to some of them. Mm-hmm. That's true. The rate that they're trying to crank them out, we may have eight. Yes, so tonight's film, we are talking about Spider-Man 2, uh, released in 2004, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Alfred Molina, and others. Uh, In light of the previous episode's experiment in improv theater, I have decided to write a short summary. (laughs) Oh, you're no fun. Thank God. Uh, it's it's got a little bit of a slam poetry feel at times though, so I'll uh, I'll do I'll do my best. I wish I had some bongos right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So the our summary of Spider-Man Two. So two years later, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, shitty pizza delivery boy, fired. In debt to his other boss's secretary. Girl he loves, Mary Jane, loves him. But their love cannot be. Best friend Harry wants to kill Spider-Man for killing his father. Not knowing he's his best friend. Or that he didn't kill his father. Aunt May can't pay her bills. We'll lose her house. Peter, terrible student. Can't, can't, can't pay a Russian character actor. Come landlord. He is blitheringly incompetent in all aspects. Harry introduces <laughs> Peter to Otto Octavius. Great scientist. Has a lovely wife. Strong father figure. Teaches Peter important lessons about romance. Peter immediately pisses the lessons away by missing Mary Jane's piss-poor performance in The Importance of Being Earnest, the sixth play in Jim Varney's Earnest series. <laughs> Everything is terrible. A hello to arms. Great scientist and strong father figure deliberately fuses self to bizarre harness of mechanical limbs that he programmed to be evil. But don't worry, he has an inhibitor chip. Shockingly, his attempt to create a miniature son goes horribly wrong. His wife is killed and, oh no, his inhibitor chip is gone. It's the arms world now. Now he's a monster who the media callously names Dr. Octopus. In retaliation for Peter missing her play, Mary Jane announces an engagement to a hunky astronaut. Peter's frustration manifests in the loss of his spider powers, a stirring metaphor for today's hypersexual world. After a conversation with his dead uncle in a heavenly Oldsmobile... Peter abandons his Spider-Man identity and grooves to the smooth sounds of Burt Bacharach. Also, he tells his aunt that he basically killed his uncle. But don't worry, all is soon forgiven. He's cool with it. Yep. Doc Ock goes to Harry to get the precious MacGuffin medal that he needs for his MacGuffin machine that makes sons. Harry asks for Spider-Man as a payment. Ock kidnaps Mary Jane. Peter is all focused again, and his powers come back. He fights on New York's famous and historic elevated train. Spider-Man loses his mask... (laughs) Stops the runaway train and is briefly Jesus. But all is for naught. Hawk gets him and brings him to Harry in exchange for the MacGuffin. Gasp! Spider-Man is Peter Parker and Harry is shocked. 
Shocked, he lets Peter go. Having failed to make a small son, Otto decides to make a bigger son. (laughs) Predictably, this does not go well. Spider-Man appears. Fight. Massive jolt of electricity. Father figure overcomes mechanical arms in his brain. Redemptive sacrifice. The son drowns in the Hudson River. Mary Jane knows Peter is Spider-Man. All is well, except for the fact that there is now a son at the bottom of the Hudson River, and everyone is unhappy. Oh, and Willem Dafoe appears in a mirror to shout, Avenge me. Mary Jane leaves her great guy fiancé at the altar to be with the mopey kid who risks his life recklessly every day. There is an an uncomfortable amount of kissing, and then our hero jumps out a window and leads a fleet of helicopters into action. The end. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, groovy, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, can we we refer to Mary Jane's fiancé as astronaut Mike Nelson? (laughs) <laughs> no, you mean Mike Dexter? Is it Mike fu- Dexter or Mike Nelson? Is it Mike? I'm pretty Dexter? sure it's, it's Mike Dexter from Thirty Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Mike, Mike Nelson Dexter. is uh, um, can, was an I'm, actual uh, astronaut who uh, served on the satellite of love. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm also mixing in the my, comics. Uh, astronaut yeah. references. In yeah. the astronaut Mike. He's Dexter. also Elijah from the Vampire Diaries and the originals. And, and in the comics, Patrick, what is he? Oh, werewolf. He's a werewolf. Yeah. Oh my god. Wow. Well, well, Jay Jonah Jameson's son a is a werewolf? Who well, be went more to the moon? Be uh, more specific, he's a man-wolf. You're correct. He's a man-wolf. I think that want... might be less specific. Because I know what a werewolf is. I don't know what a man-wolf is. Base, so you know how most werewolves are like, they're bitten by a werewolf, then turn into a werewolf under a full moon? Yeah. Yes. The man-wolf is basically bitten by the moon. Okay. So he's an astronaut that went to the moon, and the moon bit him, and now he's a wolf, more or less. That's a, that's, yeah. Is he J? Is he J. Jonas Jameson's son? Yeah. Yes. But is his name J. Jonah Jameson Jr. John not, Jameson, but his middle name could be Jonah. Because if not J. Jonah Jameson, when, when this is an incredible opportunity. Does he turn into a wolf man, or does he turn into a wolf? Man, wolf man. A wolf man with okay. with like a, a with like a flat top. Okay. Yeah. Does it have a fade? I don't. A little remember. bit, yeah. I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it's flat. It's like flat top on the top, and then it mullets. Okay. Because okay. I was imagining like Guile's hair from Street Fighter. Uh, I yeah, but, too, but Adam mullet. Adam mullet. mullet. Yeah. Which would make his hair more realistic. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, did not expect that. Did not expect that he was a moon bitten werewolf. But sure, okay. Did never see it coming, would you? And the irony, he, he's most famous for playing a vampire. There you go. The ironing is delicious. Yes. Did you just say the ironing? Might have. He did. <laughs> so. Uh, I'm very so happy I'm... you included the phrase blitheringly incompetent. Well, I did so uh, as a, a tribute to you. Thank you. Because you, you asked for it. Oh. Uh, uh, so, at the end, when Spider-Man is swinging away in front of those helicopters, I mean, those webs are just going to... Get caught in those helicopter rotors, right? I mean, those helicopters oh, yeah, are yeah. Ju- 
They'd probably have to avoid spider webs like all damn day. That's why it cuts back to that kind of solemn shot of Mary Jane. She's just watching yeah. helicopters fall out of the sky. <laughs> oh, I'm also pretty sure that probably, particularly in early 2000, the airspace over New York City probably did not allow three or four helicopters to be darting in between buildings. Side by oh, side. So, yeah, in formation, chasing a spider guy. Well, As a it's gen- funny you say that because I had a sudden realization halfway watching this movie in that I realized it's actually secretly said in the 1970s. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I think 70s are being generous. Much more like the 60s. Late 60s, really. I mean, yeah. if it's part of this... Given that astronaut Mike Dexter has walked on the moon and is only, like, 30 years old. That's true, <laughs> I mean, yeah. That party he's mm. they're at is incredibly 60s, and he we might as well just start off with opening mm-hmm. thoughts. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I texted all you guys earlier that I'm not even sure what I'm going to say about this particular movie, because... I'm not sure I have any opinions that I didn't already apply to the first Spider-Man that don't apply to this one, just more so. The things I like, I still like, but more so because they're turned up to 11. The things I don't like, I still don't like, but more so because they're turned up to 11. And I know that I'm actually going to be an outlier here because I'm certain what we're going to talk about, one thing we're going to talk about is the really, really terrible science yeah. That is one thing we're going to talk about, yes. I'm actually going to start out crazy. The bad science doesn't bother me because I realized halfway through the movie, this movie is basically just a 60s version of the Spider-Man comic book brought to life. It, it, I, it, I suppose if you're going to suspend your disbelief enough to believe that a man with spider powers can fight a man with giant mechanical arms, you might buy a son under the Hudson River. Well, my point <laughs> is, is that... In those 60s comics, you know, science was almost laughably non-existent. You know, basically everyone well, in the Marvel Universe... Well, they hadn't universe... invented science yet, had they? No, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everyone in the Marvel Universe gets their powers through some form of radiation, and it's at best vague-ish exactly what this radiation does. So if you take into... No, no, it's, no I, I would go the other way. It's incredibly specific what this radiation <laughs> does. Touche. <laughs> uh, but my point is, is that... If this is meant to be a 60s comic brought to life, the science doesn't bother me because they just don't give a damn. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I think right. that's fair. To, we'll come back. I'm willing to buy that, though. It suffers from the same problem that the first one did in that there's that weird mix of like really mopey sort of emo Spider-Man, I think it's probably a term we're going to use a lot more for uh, the third movie, but it's very much evident here so, like, pretty much anything involving Mary Jane and Peter and their complete lack of chemistry um, is obviously, like, super somber and mopey. Uh, but every so often you get a scene or a fight sequence where it's very obviously that you're watching uh, a Sam Raimi movie in kind of the yeah. evil dead way. Like, particularly, like, the surgery scene where they're trying oh, yeah, to take the arms off yeah. of that. Which Yeah, when the arms come to life. When the arms come to life, there's even a guy who, like, tries to pick up a sa- chainsaw to save his life, yeah. and there's, like, a very Raimi shot of the chainsaw, like, coming to life. It's, uh, stuff yeah. like that. I feel like, again, just like in the first movie, if if Raimi just went full camp on this, and I think, I think then I would accept uh, the science a lot more, uh, and generally when he's sort of doing the, the campy exceptions to the rule in these movies, be it... Uh, Doc Ock surgery, or what was it, the World Unity Festival in the first movie. Those are the parts that I enjoy the most, where it just goes like, fuck it, 
fuck it. This is a silly thing we're doing. Let's do it silly. Yeah, and Derek, opening thoughts. Yeah, I mean, one thing that kind of interests me is um, just, like, going back and I actually read some of the um, reviews for this film when it mm. came out. This film was incredibly well critically received. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's, like, it's considered a modern classic. People fucking yeah. love this movie for some reason. Yeah, and, like, I remember, you know, when I saw it, um, you know, I would have been uh, 18, um, I remember liking it and thinking, hey, that was a really great movie. Going back and watching it again, it's sort of like, what? what's the big deal? Like, I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of hard. To, it's, not, it's not a bad movie by any means, um, you know, and there are definitely good uh, and well-done parts to it but the the kind of critical euphoria that you know seemed to have accompanied this film it's it's kind of hard to figure that out at least looking at it from 2014 i remember 10 years on (coughs) i remember being mystified by it at the time i mean i saw i saw the first spider-man in theaters and i didn't hate it but i didn't love it i didn't bother seeing this one in theaters but i probably saw it like on hbo when it was playing a few Mm -hmm. months later I remember a lot of people at the time uh, were, like, listing it as, like, the best comic book movie that's been made so far. And this mm-hmm. is, like, really knocked out of the park. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it going, like, what are they talking about? Yeah. yeah. So I, I, was, I, I was mystified by it at the time, and I certainly don't yeah. think – I certainly don't think that it's aged well. I think part of our, part of our work tonight is going to be to try to, to, uh, to unpack that puzzle. Mm-hmm. And try to figure out why it was so widely acclaimed in its time. Well, I mean, yeah. just speaking I, for myself, I have the same thing where I remembered this movie being really, really great. I remembered loving this movie a lot. And then when we started coming back to the Spider-Mans for this project, I was very surprised how differently I viewed it now. Because back then, I would have actually been one of those people that said it was the greatest superhero movie that had been yet made. And so I am a little interested to know why, how, how that change happened because it has not been that long. Mm-hmm. Dude, but opening thoughts. It hasn't been that long, but we've had a lot of superhero movies since then, and our entire view of what a superhero movie can be has changed. Uh, at the time, I mean, what did we have that was new? Uh, Batman Begins wasn't out yet. That's uh, true. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, um, I mean, really, yeah. Uh, what, what could you compare it to? I mean. The... X, X2 and the Donner, the first Donner Superman mm-hmm. film, and then the Burton Schumacher Batman series. Yeah. And Blade 2. I remember a lot of people really liking Blade 2 at the time as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I will maintain, uh, probably until my grave, that uh, the 1991 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film is the greatest comic book film of all time. It's a real good comic book film. <laughs> Timely, uh, that reference. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, as far as my opening thoughts, I feel very similarly to Patrick, except that I did, I liked this movie for about two days when I first saw it, uh, I enjoyed it as I walked out of the theater, and then I really started to think about the dialogue, and I just remember that, that Mary Jane line about having always been outside his door was, Mm. it's, 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 there's just a lot of really bad dialogue in this, uh. I think we can agree that these would be much better movies without Spider-Man and Mary Jane. Like if they had made a, if they had made this movie without either of those characters, things would be so much better. Because then you would just have movies where James Franco and Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina are just being ridiculous. It would be incredible, and and Bruce Campbell would show up every so often for a minute or two of screen time. They'd be great movies. Um, 
it's funny though because watching this one, I really like remember, or I don't know, I got a sense of I, I don't remember thinking about this specifically in the first film, but that Spider-Man is is the character who's most like who I see myself as most like in that he is a a good-hearted person who's trying to do the right thing but just constantly fumbles over himself. Uh, he just he can't get it all together. Uh, and if I go back and listen to the first podcast, I probably said the exact same thing during that one, but I don't remember saying it, so I'll say it again. Uh, uh, You're proving your own point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, at least in the first act, it was like, okay, I can identify with this guy. He's, he's really given it his all, yeah. and he just fails constantly stick a pin in that that (laughs) feeling that you're having because i'm going to circle back to it in my closing thoughts because okay i'm pretty sure that's a fairly common uh sort of perspective on spider-man i think that's part of sort of his Mm -hmm. popularity is that he's sort of in a lot of ways the most relatable and probably also why he's so popular with children is is that he is sort of the most relatable he's yeah he's not that far removed from their own experiences unlike you know the X-Men yeah, Batman. Superman yeah, or Batman. Not, not many of us can identify with the uh, the billionaire uh, martial artist or the oh, uh, the, the invincible <laughs> <Yeah>. alien. <laughs> oh, or the Green Rage Monster. Maybe, maybe you can. <laughs> um, no, so here, here's the thing. Um, as, as a general statement, you know, I, I, I'm kind of in Dooge's camp. I remember liking this for about two days and then being like, what the <laughs> fuck did I just watch? And watching it this time around, I was much more aware of some of the issues with the film, the dialogue being one. But the the big thing is, you know, okay, so we have Peter Parker. And Peter Parker is a, uh, you know, he's a hard luck guy. Like, things go bad for Peter Parker. Okay. Like when Spider-Man stole his pizzas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, bad things happen to Peter Parker. I, I, I can accept that. But there is a difference between being kind of like a hard luck guy and being a loser. (laughs) And Sam Raimi's interpretation of Peter Parker is that Peter Parker is a fucking loser. Like, he's not a kid who has bad luck. He's the kind of kid that, like, he's lucky if he puts his pants (laughs) on the right way in the morning. Yes. Like... Can can you define what you think of as a loser? Because I think of someone who like just doesn't try, but I feel like Peter Parker tries all the time. But but like he's, it's not just that he is not in control of the things around him. Yeah, he does an incredibly poor job of controlling the things that are in him, and yeah. then he mopes about okay, it for a enough. long time. Yeah. I would say that. For me, it's also the sheer amount of things that go wrong for him, combined with the fact that I I don't know if the realistically is the right word, but on some level, I feel like he should be able to at least get a handful of these under control. Yes. Yeah. It's, well, he he has very. Uh, God, but he also yeah. what what I what I find incredibly frustrating is not only does everything go poorly for him, but he's incapable of explaining himself to anybody. The thing that I found the most frustrating throughout this entire thing uh, is the sort of romantic comedy misunderstanding that's happening between uh, Mary Jane and Peter. So she's in this play, and he promises that he's going to come see her her at this uh, performance. And he doesn't show up, and that's sort of the crux of a lot of sort of the the sort of distrust that Mary Jane... Her getting engaged Mm -hmm. to another man. But... 
But the reason he doesn't go there is that while he's going there on his little moped scooter, a there's a police chase going going on behind him, and the cop car hits his moped. The only reason he survives is that he's Spider-Man. He does like a cool backflip. But he has a completely totaled scooter. He has been in a life-threatening accident. He could very easily say, I was on the way to the, the theater, and the cops ran my car, my scooter down. He could just... And here's my scooter. Is exactly. There's probably a yeah. police report about this. He's in the newspaper for this, probably. And he never bothers to explain himself. He never goes... And there's no sort of like, or the thing with the pizza at the beginning. It's not, he's just a fuck up. It's not that the woman who was accepting the pizzas was an incredible bitch for actually enforcing their stupid 30 minutes or less policy because he got there with 30 minutes and 30 seconds. It's a psychopathic policy. I, I, I will um, also say, he, he's, uh, the, the pizza delivery guy tells him that like he has to go something like 40 blocks in New York to deliver pizzas in eight minutes. Yeah. It's impossible to go 40 blocks in New York in like an hour. Well, it also asks the question, does, is Peter Asif Madvi's only yeah. driver? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, that pizza place is very clearly sponsored by Dr. Pepper. There are about eight different things of Dr. Pepper. Like, the entire time, like, Asif Manvi is chewing them out, and they pass by, like, three different coolers of Dr. Pepper, and right behind Peter, while he's being chewed out, this guy very ostentatiously drinks from a cup that's perfectly positioned as a Dr. Pepper. And I think I think part of the problem with the, the whole first act, and I guess even some of the second act of the film, is that, yeah, Peter's a giant fuck-up, and... The ostensible reason that he is, you know, just fucking up all the time is that he's a superhero and he's Spider-Man and he's kind of doing his real job on the side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we don't really see much of that, right? I mean, the first scene of him being Spider-Man is is that, like, pizza scene and it's played for laughs, but it doesn't give us a sense of, like, the stakes that, you know, his his fuck-uppery is actually worth something. That, you know, he is giving something of himself, of his personal... Um, of his personal life and his like academic success to, um, yeah. to actually save like he people. Could, like well, he could have been I, given uh, like fairly reasonable conditions to get that pizza over there, and he kids. and he was late because he saved some person's life. It, it, but it's just kind of like he was given impossible conditions, and he does some crazy, crazy Spider-Man shit, uh, and it still isn't good enough. Partially because he spent so much time with that fucking uh, fucking uh, closet full of cleaning supplies. If he hadn't bothered with that, if he just said, fuck it, I'll get to that in 30 seconds. Yeah. That lady would have had nothing. She would have had to accept those goddamn pizzas. Yeah, I mean, well, I think, Spider-Man would have been delivered. I, I, think, <laughs> I think part of the distinction... Sorry, go ahead, dude. Uh, the, uh, the part that frustrated me the most is that he won't clear up the miscommunication with Harry about the death of his father, which is the same yeah. thing that, we, that we're talking about here. But I think there is a legitimate reason for why he does not clear up these miscommunications. And it's it becomes explicit when he explains to Aunt May exactly how Uncle Ben died. Like, he really believes that he is responsible for all of these things. He knows that he's not responsible for the death of uh, Norman Osborn, but he feels like he is. Because but he, he kind couldn't of save is. him. But he's more directly responsible for that death than he is for Uncle Ben. No, he's not, because... Uh, it, Norman Osborn went crazy, and then, while trying to kill Spider-Man with his own uh, glider, killed himself. All Spider-Man did was jump over it. Exactly! Exactly! If he had not jumped out of the way of that glider, Spider-Man would be dead and Norman Osborn would be alive. He murdered Harry! Or Norman! (laughs) Somebody! uh, (laughs) And 
the the miscommunications that he doesn't clear up with Mary Jane are because regardless of whether he can make it to the play or not, he doesn't feel like he deserves to be with her because he can't devote himself to her. He has other responsibilities. It's it's not that, and I think this is where all of his clumsiness comes from too, is that he really believes he's not capable of doing things correctly. So he, he isn't capable of it. Uh, it's the same it, reason that he loses yeah, his mojo. And that gets to an interesting point because, like, you know, Stefan, you, you know, you, you sort of described uh, the, dif- the distinction between, like, a hard luck case and a loser. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's sort of like, yeah, I mean, movie audiences won't accept a loser, right? They can yeah. – they accept sure. hard luck cases because – of some kind of melodramatic circumstance, right? That's how melodrama works. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there, there's a kind of outside circumstance that, you know, causes you to be too late or, you know, you run out of time or, you know, there, it's just something that you can't help. Mm-hmm. And that sense of powerlessness is sort of what creates pathos from for the character. Whereas here, mm-hmm. it, all of that, like, all of that in, inhibition is, like, coming internally, right? It's, it's something that seems yeah. sort of innate to the character, um, and so we're, we're just kind of left with, no, come on, do better. You know, there's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that's true. And, and I think that, I mean, w- we can say like, oh, well, that, this kind of stuff could never work with a film, with a, a film audience. Like audiences would never accept this. Clearly audiences did, yeah, no, people fucking but, but yeah, but it's, <sighs> So much of the plot of this film boils down to either characters who do not take actions that they are strongly incentivized internally and externally to take, or pure coincidence. Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot of pure coincidence. And 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 just just so we get this out of the way up front. The screenwriter of this film was Alvin Sargent, a two-time Oscar-winning screenwriter. And uh, Michael, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his Siobhan. last name. Siobhan. Siobhan, yeah. Uh, the best-selling novelist uh, is one of the, is the third guy credited with the screenplay. Is that how his name yeah. is pronounced? Um, I always thought it was Siobhan. It could be I Chabon. Uh, we talked about this Siobhan, in the Hulk, I think. but please oh. note oh. that those screenplay credits are not the ampersand. <laughs> They're the and. Yeah. yeah. That's where yeah, things tend to get okay, into trouble. Yeah, um, but it's uh, it's interesting to me that uh, Derek, when we watched the first film, you you complimented it for the David Kep screenplay, which was very structured, um, you know, somewhat formulaic but tight. Mm-hmm. It was a tight screenplay, and this is not a tight screenplay at all. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, the yeah, first one was really tight. I'm not sure if it's. Well, how are we defining tight? Um, cer- like, certainly, I think the first act seems like it drags because yeah. you know, mostly because of the you know protagonist problems that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the rest of the film moves along at a pretty pretty nice pace. Um, how are uh, I think you? Yeah. I think the pace is okay. I think what what bugged me is. In addition to the fact that a large portion of the film was motivated by coincidence, mm-hmm. um, you know, ostensibly the, the plot of the film is Dr. Octopus is trying to construct a second sun-making machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or at least his arms are. Yeah, yeah. For reasons. Uh, we'll to, oh, For we'll reasons. We'll get to that. I, <laughs> we'll get to I that. have a quote I'm supposed um, to read off when we get to that. But 
Okay. The um, the ways that that intersects with Peter's problems and Peter's arc are completely incidental. Like mm-hmm. Peter has no idea that this thing is being constructed until the exact moment that it poses some kind of threat. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it poses some kind of threat is not tied to anything involved with the journey that Peter's been on. Like, it's just... We well, get to the we get to the final act of the film. Shit, we need something that's going to blow something yeah. up. So there are problems with motivation. I, I would define a yeah. screenplay as tight in that you never wonder why you're watching any of it. Like there's never any question oh, yeah, of the parts was... being connected to each other and moving. And in this... there was a lot of that questioning going on during this film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like Doctor Octopus is like so incidental to everything Peter's doing that. When he finally gets around, you almost kind of go, oh, that's right. He's here. Yeah. He just yeah. kind of keeps oh, yeah. showing up. Yeah, there, there was a long time when Doc Ock was not around. Also, I wasn't assuming that, that it was a coincidence that Doc Ock just happened to find Peter Parker and Mary Jane in that uh, coffee shop. I was assuming that he went block by block through the entirety <laughs> of New York City, all five boroughs, and was throwing cars from hundreds of yards away through literally every storefront window. Hoping, that was- hoping, that, hoping that Peter Parker, not Spider-Man, would be able to dodge said cars. <laughs> Basically, this is the Punisher. That's a great point! Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, well, that kind of to me that kind of harkens back to the whole this is a '60s comic book kind of thing because that's the exact kind of thing that would happen in a '60s comic book. Like, but you can't you can't use the oh it's a '60s I, comic book thing as an excuse in 2004. I'm not I'm not using it as an excuse. Do not mistake what I'm saying. I'm explaining that this tone. <laughs> that's excuse That's what I'm Sam Raimi said too. This this tone is not work in terms of modern day and this is again we'll circle back to this at the end this has always been one of my problems with spider-man but that's why a lot of this movie is the way it is i think is that there's a lot of stuff that if you look at it in terms of i'm reading a 1960s comic book you're like oh so that's why he did it that way and that's I, that's why i think he did mm-hmm. this particular thing with the car going through the window this way yeah mm-hmm. he's he's clearly going for a tone mm-hmm. that is is i think a little inconsistent throughout the film yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I imagine Nick would argue becomes more consistent throughout Spider-Man Three, but uh, I will argue I, that I will absolutely <laughs> spoiler alert. I will argue that Spider-Man Three is fantastic because it finally embraces the campiness that these movies yeah. hint at but never fulfill. And to be fair, I do think that some of the best moments in this film were the the comic relief. He stole moments. that guy's pizzas. Yeah, or he's in the elevator with uh with that guy. That guy from VH1. Uh, sure. Yes. Uh, uh, or the two-year-old child saving his life. That yeah, I thought not, was genuinely hilarious. I thought that was yeah. actually really good because I I felt like that was a natural kind of human th- thing. Particularly, I liked that he was able to save someone in a building burning as himself instead of as Spider-Man, even though it was the pretty much a repeat of the scenario from the first film but this one wasn't a trap and there really was a child stuck in the building yeah oh yeah um, you're right um, but you know it's I, someone's helping but why does you, that two-year-old child help. have the strength to pull him up it she oh, doesn't but what a twist her trying is what gives him the strength to pull himself up uh, like I, you know I just, it's, it's someone trying to help him and him realizing that he is worth helping is that the, is that also, the only time in the movie that he just randomly 
help somebody not related to, you know, Doc Doc? It's it's not he long after their he, uh, he randomly does not help someone in the alley who's being mugged and beaten up yeah, by two exactly. guys when he would not have needed to do it as Spider-Man. No. He could have just run over and scared them away. Or alerted a police officer or something. <laughs> he just like, yeah, he decides he's not Spider-Man and he sees a man being viciously beaten and is like, well, I'm not Spider-Man. Yes. It's not my problem. Like, yeah. there's a there's a middle ground here, Peter. Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to know that Peter learned none of the lessons from the first film, where if you beat up one New Yorker, you beat up all New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> Derek. Well, I mean, the other I, I think the other kind of uh, stirring thing about that, that scene where he rescues the girl um, in, the, in the apartment that's on fire is that at the end, there's just that little bit with the two firefighters talking, and they mm-hmm. reveal that someone yeah. was still in the building and died. Yeah. Um, and just this moment where, you know, of sort of realization that, you know, there, there's he's so, only so much he can do. And there, there's a, mm-hmm. a limitation there to being well, Peter Parker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the way I, that I read that was not that there's only so much that he can do, but that he had not done all he could. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think I think Derek meant that there's only yeah, so yeah, much that Peter Parker can do. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, let's maybe. Uh, so we kind of go through this film a little. Let's let's talk about some of the uh, some of the characters and some of the performances <laughs> that are particularly right. jumping out. Okay. A, a quick a quick diversion before we dive into the meat of these. Um, we are introduced in this film to the first time to Professor Kurt Connors. Yep. Play, played by Dylan Baker, who of course, uh, in an alternate continuity, will one day become the Lizard. But not this continuity. Yes. Not this continuity. No. And, and uh, honestly, I I feel bad saying this because I, Dylan Baker's fine in this movie. He's not given much to do, but he's fine. Um, oh, okay. As I watched this film, I thought to myself that the lizard was obviously never intended to be a real villain in this series, because if he were, they would not have cast Dylan Baker no. in the role. And in, a, and in like an entirely it, other continuity, he played the father of Emma Stone. In, in drive, drive yeah. yes. <laughs> that show that I we and only we remember. Wow. That was a Tim Minear wow. show. <laughs> wow. We are not robbing this bank. <laughs> I am not robbing this dude. <laughs> I am not buying this house. This is this has the, been We and Only We Remember Drive. <laughs> brought to you yes. by Blue Easings. The one seems uh, yeah. <laughs> If any of you listeners out there remember Drive, please email us. <laughs> the one thing that no googling. The one thing that bugged me about Doctor Connors as a character was, you know, it wasn't even the character or the performance. It's the fact. Tell me, it's something about his academic. It's, it's absolutely something about it. He fucking he he assigns a fucking research paper on a working living physicist to his sophomore <laughs> physics students. To be to be fair, I think that is uh, Peter very had a choice. He chose to write him on write it on that. Well, no, uh, it's, it, it seems clear that the assignment is to take take like current research and write about it. Okay, yeah, and like all right, I don't know. Like again, <laughs> I, work, I work in the humanities. I'm not in the sciences. Mm. Maybe maybe they do more uh, more of that kind of work there. But that's uh, my girlfriend is in work. the sciences, and you, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, that is grad work. Yeah, no. Well, on that note, um, I don't exactly believe Tobey Maguire's 20 or 21 in this movie <laughs> at all. 
Yeah. Uh, so Toby uh, Maguire had to write a paper on a working businesses. <laughs> I know right, he got the part. We'll you back. We'll pay, we'll pay you fifteen million dollars. He's certainly not qualified in any other regard. He had to prove he, it some way. He's a method actor. Um, so, oh, Toby Maguire, uh, voiceover still terrible, but a little bit less of it in this film. Mm-hmm. A little bit, yeah. I guess. Um, well. Uh, there was significantly less voiceover because I, I don't know if the Spider-Man mask was asking for too much money for this film or if uh, or Tobey Maguire demanded in his contract that he be wearing the mask less often. But yeah. he is not wearing the mask for, for the majority of the time that he is in the suit, even. That's true. Yeah, yeah no, that's a good point. Um, There's probably less than five minutes of Spider-Man in this movie. Well, yeah. Spider-Man when he's not a, a, a dated CGI puppet. Yes. <laughs> That's, oh, we get, we will talk about the special effects later because they are terrible. I don't think it's fair. Is this the same uh, the same suit that he was wearing in the first film? There, I can't remember. There were there were a, I think there there were a lot of small tweaks to it, but it yeah. was a refinement on the design that existed rather than holding. Okay, it. because it is it is a remarkably professional looking suit <laughs> like this is not something that a 19 year old made in his aunt's house a 19 well, year old who is living on 20 bucks a yeah. week but that's yeah. almost always a problem like you watch the first amazing spider-man and like the first mm-hmm. costume he makes is like yeah that's what a 19 year old makes it's just like a hoodie with like the stupid thing and then he yeah. then he just fucking is wearing this incredibly professional like where did you get that yeah, he just yeah. suddenly has uh, the costume. It never, they never make. Well, he he I has like he has the proportional strength that. and speed and tailoring ability of a spider. <laughs> also, also, spider powers apparently Spiders. allow him to fall the entire length of, of skyscrapers without uh, any oh damage. Oh my god, he should have died in so many falls in this fucking movie. But like, spiders he can't died. do that. I'm a spider could fall out of a plane and be okay uh, as long as it could. I'm actually going to again fight you on that one. This is a man who can lift cars. Yeah. Like, okay, this okay, is a man but, who can hold back a train. Yeah. Like, he's already established to be super uh, strong. He, he, he rips barbed wire off of himself uh, that, that does not even tear his suit. <laughs> That's true. It doesn't make it smart or reasonable, but it does make it true. <laughs> so, to- Toby Maguire, I-, I still found him mopey and uninspiring through most of this mm-hmm. film. The only part of the film that I will say I did genuinely enjoy him in was the uh, the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence. Because he was <laughs> yeah. such a dickhead in that entire oh, yes. sequence. Like, just Absolutely. this goofy kid walking down the street and smiling. We, show, uh-huh. we actually show That's that just montage. just set you up our, for Spider-Man 3. We actually yeah, show, show that montage, montage in our production course. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I, it's, we will Wire is capable of being a good actor, just not in these movies. I mean, I, I wonder, though, because I feel like his, like, I mean, I know that Peter Parker is is a physics whiz and not a chemistry whiz, but, and we, we can comment all, all day on the lack of chemistry between first and Don. I see what you're hey. doing there, yeah. Hey, oh yeah. Um, but is it possible that that's a deliberate choice on his part, that he is just constantly awkward and lacking chemistry with, with the actress? Or he's doing it with the character, and we're reading it as the actor and actress not having chemistry. It's, I would I would buy that if I bought that Kirsten Dunst was a competent actress, <laughs> which I don't. Like my, I, so you, you guys, I assume you have all seen Lost in Translation. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. There is no doubt in my mind that Anna Faris is playing Kirsten Dunst in that movie. 
when she is playing the dumb movie star. Okay. That is flirting with Scarlett Ooh. Johansson. Okay. And Ferris, husband of Chris Pat, who we will talk about later because of Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> wife, wife of Chris Pratt. <laughs> wife, husband, who's into labels? <laughs> well, I mean, now seems as good a time to any to bring up, you know, regardless of Kirsten Dunn's acting ability, <coughs> she's got nothing to do. And it's it's the same no, problem no. in the first movie where she has nothing to do, only more so because in this movie, she still has nothing to do. And Well, she's... She's given more to do, more. She's given more as a part, but nothing to do she's, she's, with the she's part. She's even more of what Lillian calls a sexy lamp in this movie than she was in the previous movie because she basically just her entire conflict is which handsome man do I want to sleep with? Don't and why won't my friend right? pay attention to me? Yeah, yeah. like the, it, it's it. I, I feel like I have to be feminist because Lillian's is not here, but. It, it, let's be fair. It is incre- It is really sexist because that's her only part in the movie is to yeah. worry about which man she should be sleeping with. Well, I would. Ho- I would hope that you would be feminist even if Lily were here yeah. or well. not. Um, yeah, I think pretty. <laughs> I'm not, you're pretty good. much most of what she does is sit on stage and flub lines from Ernest. Uh, the importance of being earnest. That is like ninety yeah. percent of her role. The rest of it is like. Like being told she's burying the astronaut, and you know, giving a dumb "I'm outside your door" speech. Yeah, and she gets I mean, to run through uh, some kind of park in a uh, in a wedding dress. A huge yeah. wedding, dress. wedding dress. Yes, she, she's not she's not well written in the film. She's not given a lot to do, but like it, she's I... playing she's playing the love interest in a comic book film. Even with such little to do, like, you can still make an impression in that role yeah. if you're a decent yeah. actress. And she does not make an impression. I mean, like, okay, so the the, the, the analog, um, Kim Basinger, Tim Burton's Batman, right. given almost nothing to do. Like, she, she's not torn between two men. She's fairly firmly in the, uh, the Batman camp. Mm-hmm. But she does not have a tremendous amount of agency in that film. She's just kind of there. But she does a pretty good job at least registering as someone who is desirable. Yeah, that's that's like, the thing is that I do not believe that these two characters are even attracted to each other. Exactly. That's what yeah. I was going to say. Like, Daniel, yeah. Daniel was earlier saying that maybe it was, like, sort of a choice on Tobey Maguire's part that, like, he's so socially awkward that there's not necessarily a sense of chemistry coming his way towards her. But there's even less of a sense of... Because he still has sort of the dweeby, like, I'm obsessed with this lady and she's going to solve all my problems kind of thing. But there's absolutely no sense in any of the things that Kristen Dunst says or does where it really makes any sense for her to be with Peter. There's never why any There's never any explanation for why she thinks she's... Why she thinks he's his best, her best friend. God damn you pronouns! Um, yeah. Or why uh, she cares. I mean, there's no sense. There's no sense of her at all. Like, when they're at the yeah. wedding, at the wedding... She's got, like, four bridesmaids, and you don't know who any of those people are. Who are all of those people on her side of the chapel? We know that her mother is sick, and we know from the first film that her dad's kind of an asshole. Yeah. And that's it. Wouldn't Peter and, or at least Aunt May, have gotten invitations to that wedding? Well, there's that whole conversation about whether he they should mm. be invited or not. You would think that Aunt May would be invited, but it seems pretty clear... Uh, with that that conversation where tre- she tries to do the Spider-Man kiss 
with the astronaut that she doesn't want Peter to be there. Slight tangent that I wanted to mention the first time we talked and forgot. Almost every nerd I know has tried the Spider-Man kiss, including myself, and almost every nerd I know has been disappointed by trying it. So, kids at home... Hey, do you mean that you were hanging upside down in an alley <laughs> or just that you... in the rain? We'll, uh, how, how about this? We'll, we'll save our Spider-Man kiss stories. <laughs> um, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about uh, performances, um, I do want to spend just like a minute or two on uh, Rosemary Harris. On Aunt, Aunt May? May? I, yeah. think, yes. I think she delivers a really excellent performance in this film. Yeah. Um, and she... Go ahead. I was going to say, the, the, uh, the scene where... Peter you know, confesses to mm-hmm. her about feeling responsible about Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, she she knocked that out of the park. Mm-hmm. It's I have such I have mixed feelings about her her performance because I agree that that part near the end where she confesses where he confesses and the later part where they make up. I really love the way she plays that, but she drove me crazy in the bank scene. Oh, the bank because, scene. We'll, we'll, we'll get oh, to the I bank got, scene. I got a lot of thoughts on that bank scene. But D- Derek, oh. do you, uh, f- finish finish your Rosemary Harris. Mm. Well, I mean, I was, I was just going to say, um, you know, I, I think she, she is kind of she's really crucial as a kind of through line um, throughout mm-hmm. the film. I mean, I, th- I think it it gives the script a good bit of uh, the coherence that it has, and I think she's in large part responsible for the fact that the last three acts work. Um, and mm-hmm. it, in some sense, it's it would be kind of interesting to compare. Um, like her her role just narratively with Mary Jane's, and I'm I'm wondering if they're to, they're you know if you were to sort of somehow combine those characters, if you if you might create something that's kind of uh, more than the sum of its parts. Of course, it would you know then there would be even fewer women in the film. But, it'd be it'd be yeah. Harold and yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, she but, might I mean, not. There's there's, there's, might be there's an to my aspect blood. of. <laughs> There's an aspect of like relationship building and of of like chemistry, you know, in a, in a different sense between uh, between Peter and and at May here that is like completely absent. Um, well, and and of movement. Yeah. I mean, you, you you see, you know, even at the beginning of the film, the, the first thing you find out about Aunt May is her her home is being foreclosed by the bank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was. And then they uh, won't let her have that toaster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you, you Joel see McHale. kind of Joel let her have that, to- yeah. that toaster. You, you see, you see, kind of the the desperation that she's dealing with mm-hmm. and the strength that she's trying to bear that with, and you see the relationship between she and Peter mm-hmm. kind of strain and then almost break and then come around back in a, a a way that is healed, similar to how you, in theory, in the script, see that happen with Peter and Mary Jane. Yeah. But you actually believe this one. <laughs> yeah, yes. you believe this one. And there, there's like a contrast there of of circumstances, right? I mean, Aunt, Aunt May is in her own kind of hard luck position. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. Mary Jane, like, she's like a star, right? I mean, she's professional. Yeah. She's tearing up that Oscar Wilde yeah. play. Right. And yeah. so, people seem to love her despite the fact, fact she screws every them every line. she gets distracted, she and loses so there, her And so there's lines. a certain yeah. kind of authenticity that comes with that uh, and a certain kind of investment that that comes with that um that relationship between peter and aunt may that that we perceive as authentic that we basically perceive as why would mary jane ever hang out with peter you know why why would she be interested in him so i think Uh, the contrast is part of that yeah even from the uh even from that that birthday party scene uh 
when she she falls asleep on the table and Peter wakes her up and she says, uh, everybody's gone, aren't they? And this is a line that works on three levels because it's, she means it very immediately about the people at the party. But it also works for her because people in her life are disappearing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter's moved out and Ben has obviously died. Uh, but it also works for Peter because he o- always feels like everyone is leaving him. And it's played so straight. Like, her delivery, mm-hmm. you only hear it on the immediate practical level. Uh, but I I mean, there, there's, that's right after she says something. I think she calls Peter Ben uh, or something like she that. Does, and yeah. it's, it's a very emotional scene. And I, I thought that the the kind of openness between the two of them that Peter acknowledges that he has seen this thing about the foreclosure and, you know, he, he gives her the opportunity to talk about it and they kind of do, but you know, she's like, everyone's struggling right now. So what, what can we do? Peter's relationship with every other character in the film is predicated on some kind of deception Mm -hmm. and his relationship with aunt may is, you know, even down to the point where he confesses his guilt over uncle men's death. Yeah. is the only truly honest relationship mm-hmm. in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think that when when do we actually know that she knows that he's Spider-Man? In, is that in the third film? She implies in the second one. I think she admits yeah, in the third. I yeah, mean, she is laying it on clearly, super thick. She, yeah. <laughs> she's not implying. Yeah. She's like poking him in the ribs with a like that, <laughs> that impressionable child fucking loves Spider-Man. Yeah. He's so inspiring. Yeah. Don't you think, Peter? He's really inspiring. He just but, he gives people hope, Peter. He gives them hope. I mean, to be fair, he Spider-Man did personally rescue her in this film. Uh as well as she rescued Spider-Man. Uh, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, so there would be a reason for her to talk about him as yeah as a nut, you know, an outside inspiring figure, but, uh, you know, and maybe someone that Spider-Man could look to now that his uncle has died, but. Now, I want to make another smooth transition here to another character. Is it Bruce because... Campbell and how maybe he's actually playing the same guy that he was in the first film? <laughs> it's not. We'll get, we, we, we'll get there. Okay. But, uh, you, you said that, you know, Peter studied <coughs> physics, but he's not studying chemistry. <laughs> Well, but in this film, there is clearly no physics or chemistry. There's just science, yes. because Otto Octavius is just a scientist. scientist. Well, that was he the same in the first film, wasn't it? Didn't they go Elliot. visit the science building? Yeah. They went yeah, to the Columbia. science department at Columbia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Alfred Molina as the, I guess, ostensible antagonist of the film. <laughs> I, I don't think that's really fair, because really the arms are the antagonists. Well, as... as yeah, yeah, so let's Here's talk the about this, Patrick. Here's where I have a quote from Lillian that she very specifically okay. wanted me to read verbatim, because she felt very strongly about the fact that all the Spider-Man movie villains have no, don't really have agency. They're good men with evil forces inside them, and she wants mm-hmm. me to say, quote... But, like, Doc Ock's arms have opinions? Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Artificial we, we, intelligence. We about, Artificial intelligence. We, they ha- we talked about this some in the first film with, uh, with Norman Osborn as well. You know, he has a split personality, and it's almost there to, like, absolve Norman Osborn <laughs> of the guilt of being a character. And, and it's the same And trick. the weird thing is, from an adaptation standpoint, because we are looking at them as adaptations too, there's yeah. literally only one Spider-Man villain who has this as an emotional problem, and it's actually the lizard. Every other Spider-Man villain was an asshole. Doc Ock was an asshole. Norman became only slightly, moderately more evil when he decided to Green Goblin it up. And the Sandman is a jerk. So it's yeah. there's this weird trend in the movies to taking 
should be good men and making it not okay, it's not really their fault. The arms, the arms confuse me to no end. Uh, so, so he's, he's there, he's got his precious tritium, and I'm almost certain that he specifically says precious tritium. Uh, it's repeated like three or four times. Yeah, it's like he says yeah. precious tritium, and then somebody in the crowd stage whispers precious tritium. Precious uh, tritium. Uh, it's fucking ridiculous. No, no, you gotta do it anyway, over again. Anyway, go. You didn't say but, precious tritium. All right, tritium. so he's there. He's there ostensibly to uh, reveal his, you know, sun-making uh, device for some reason. But just sort of as an afterthought, he also has revealed these like incredibly advanced AIs. That he has mm-hmm. put into these octopus arms that he has now grafted onto his spine. But don't yeah. worry, there's the inhibitor chip. Uh, yeah. But there's so many questions about it. First of all, how is the fact that you have developed such advanced AI not what you need with the guy? He just inv- yeah. he develops AI- <laughs> these AIs as an afterthought. Just as kind of a tool <laughs> to manipulate the sun, which it will yeah, kill mm-hmm. you because they're heat and magnetism resistant, which doesn't mean anything. But he's also able to yeah. stand two feet away from the sun with no ill effect. So what are the arms for? But then they're, oh, but he yeah. also programmed the AIs to be evil, so he needs the inhibitor chip. But more I... importantly, he programmed them to have a concept of thievery. Because, <laughs> because at some point, like, he's Right, right after the accident, and he discovers that the inhibitor chip, and there's this amazing shot where he's like, wait a minute, you're talking to me. And he flips around yep. so the camera can see the inhibitor chip, and he flips back. It's like a, it's a whip uh-huh. pan, very interesting thing. So he's like, these arms deserve to be at the bottom of the river, for reasons he doesn't explain. But then the arms start convincing him uh, instead to build another sun machine. Uh, and he's like, but we need something. We need money. How do we get the money? And the arms tell him, you know what, you could you could steal it. Which means he can inv- steal giant bags of <laughs> which means, coins. Which you can means steal gold coins which means that from his Scrooge AI Duck's vault. Which means that his AI arms that he needed to manipulate a son also have a concept of money and the and ownership and thievery. Which is why? Why did you do this, uh, Octavius? Can, well, well, I, I, we I, th- also... I think you could argue. You could argue very strongly why he did this. You could also ask why is this not his world changing? Exactly uh, the sun thing. Fucking, I don't know what that's for. But fucking <laughs> a those AI thing. You could use them for for like very delicate surgeries. You could use them to you know rescue puppies from mines. You could use them to go out into outer space and mine asteroids. There's a billion fucking uses for these things. I'm like the fucking sun. Here's there's a here's my there's a. Uh, Dude. There's a big problem with the uh, the arms, uh, at least at the beginning. Oh, there are a few. Yes. Uh, how does his skeleton support them? Because there's no exoskeleton <laughs> leading down to the ground. They're... Like, these things are, they, they have to weigh thousands of pounds, and he just is walking around with them. Here's my question. How much of this is baked into the concept? Because what, what, we, what we're seeing, minus we replace fusion with whatever counted for 60s awesome power generation back then, is and atomic explosions. Yeah, it's basically Double what the character did. He invented the arms to work on the sixty on the radiation stuff and the atomic power sources. But everyone just paid attention to the atomic power sources. And yeah. I guess my question is, we can nitpick the scientific problems with the arms and the fact that he, if he really needed money, he could just patent these arms and be a bajillionaire. 
Yeah. How much of this is baked into the character, and how much can we really realistically be able to adapt? Well, maybe it was his wife's dream that he made. No, she doesn't fucking care. She, she just she... wants to read T.S. Eliot. She's not a scientist. Yeah. If anyone, maybe if anyone, it was Daniel Day Kim. He mysteriously disappears <laughs> right after the first sun explosion. I think That's he's. Great. I think he's. Uh, you know. The puppet master from the shadows. He's mysterious. Wasn't why are they having an energy high energy experiment in the middle of downtown New York as opposed to I don't know the middle of the Utah desert? Also, yeah, bad location. Dude, you you were asking if Daniel Day Cam appeared in in another Marvel film? Yes, he was in Hulk. Hulk. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Uh, Uh, Playing a very similar role, wasn't he? Uh, uh, Insofar as he had like two lines disappearing to the ostensible antagonist. Um. The other thing I don't understand, uh, along with why are they doing it in the middle of downtown Manhattan, why does that one failed experiment completely ruin Harry Osborne? Because he presumably, he presumably to... owns the patents for all of these things. Yeah. So if anybody so that, stands that's... to make bajillions of dollars from the, atomi- from the robot arms, it's fucking Harry Osborne. Let's talk about James <laughs> Franco <laughs> and Harry Osborn and his and his hair. amazing, amazing hair. I love his hair. <coughs> I I will say uh, okay. there are parts of this where he's clearly James Francoing much harder, and I think <laughs> it's a verb. <laughs> he, he goes, he goes like four. I yeah, think I this know. is the this is the film where we made a quantum leap in Franco. And there's yeah. one line in he's particular. He's just some guy in the first movie. Now he's James. Now there's there's one bit in yeah. particular that the James Francoist. It's Nobel Prize, Otto. Nobel Prize. Yeah. <laughs> Nobel Prize. We'll Otto. see you. Sweet. For me, the line that really gets me is right after the right after uh, the failed experiment, where he's explaining to one of his underlings why he's so mad. And I don't remember the exact wording, but it was essentially uh, like he was the underling was like, "But, but Spider Man saved your life," and his response is, "Spider Man touched me and he humiliated me. I must kill him." <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, being touched by Spider-Man is a bridge too far for James Franco. He's dirty. He touched me and humiliated me. Show us where the Spider-Man touched you on this yeah. doll. Uh, I swear no, to God, no, every no. time Derek's image comes up, that Muppet is totally moving closer. It has to be. It is inching closer every moment. Uh, yeah, uh, if anyone's listening at home, Derek has a, a, a Muppet. On a table over his uh, his left shoulder. Th- that being said, <laughs> um, back back to the the more pertinent point. So James Franco, uh, I guess ostensibly the secondary antagonist. Mm-hmm. I know, film. sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he he's he's carrying sort of the emotional. Weight I mean, I, of his father's death from. The I mean, first we talked film. about earlier how like every like doc ock kind of disappears for a while and then he shows up and go oh yeah doc ock's in this movie i feel like that's even more apparent with harry osborne like he's he's in a lot of it sort of like for the first act or so first act or two like pretty much up until sort of the announcement of the engagement then he just kind of disappears for the rest of the movie and then he goes oh yeah harry osborne portion of the film he's a weird him in this movie is very weird because his relationship with peter is very plot dependent because he has to be Peter's best friend, but not so much his best friend that he could that he would actually take care of Peter's enormous financial problems, which is probably something he could do with the money in his couch cushions. Yeah, yeah, yeah but not. Peter's too but proud at the same to take time, that. He can make it on his own. He's he yeah. at the same time he's his best friend, 
but his best friend who's hiding the secret of the person he hates most in the world. Yeah. So this this relationship, it it, it what it should be is a very tense friendship where he really he, he where Harry is ju- trying to juggle these two aspects of himself and how he feels about Peter. Instead, it just feels like it ping pongs back ping pongs back and forth. Either he's Peter's bestest 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 friend that has ever lived. Or he hates him, and I think you're all frozen. So I think no, no, I'm no, 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 no,
insist to Peter that they are his best friend. And there's absolutely no evidence of either of that in the movies. Because obviously Mary Jane and Peter talk a fair amount during the movie. I think Harry and Peter have three conversations in the entire movie. They talk... All of which are incredibly happy. Yeah, I think they like exchange like pleasantries at the birthday party. Then they have this conversation here where Harry is like, you're my best friend, why won't you rat uh, Spider-Man out to me? And then they talk again later when he finds out who Spider-Man is. Uh, I, I, I did not buy the, the reactions to either of those char- by either of those characters to finding out that their supposed best friend was Spider-Man. Because yeah. either one or both of them should have said, Oh, that makes oh! so much sense. I know. <laughs> I get that was it. something I was uh, talking about while I was watching the movie. I feel like once anyone pieces it together, it's so obvious. There's a there is a short yeah. sequence where we see that the way that Peter cleans the Spider-Man suit is to go to a public laundromat. <laughs> <laughs> His professional career depends on Spider-Man. He is known to be best friends with Spider-Man. This is not a good strategy to keep your, uh... He tells a doctor that he is dreaming I love that sequence. About that sequence is amazing. So he goes to see a doctor after his powers are crapping out on him. And he starts telling the doctor, he's like, I have this dream, um, where I'm Spider-Man. In a dream. Well, it's well, not my it's dream, not it's my a friend's dream. dream. It's bizarre. It's like, well, alright, I have this yes. dream where I'm Spider-Man. In a dream. I'm not Spider-Man. Uh, you know what? No, in, in, in fact, I'm not Spider-Man at all. It's someone else's dream. They're Spider-Man. I'm not Spider-Man. Well, was the doctor, not head of Gestapo at all. The doctor had set a pretty casual tone by wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt under his open lab coat. He's a very hippy-dippy uh, doctor who is giving Peter very, very bedroomy eyes. Like, he's, like, oh, sitting yeah. down next to Peter. He's like, so, let's have a gab session. Tell me about your dreams. And and then giving him the worst advice that he possibly can. Yes. Oh, yeah, maybe you're not supposed to be yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, maybe your friend yeah, that, who isn't Spider-Man, you're not Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to uh, back to the laundromat. Um, I was gonna say that he he could soak the uh, the costume in the, in his bathtub, but they do establish that his building has a shared bathroom. He does not have a personal bathroom in his apartment. And his landlord is a Russian character actor, yes. who would clearly put two and two together. Whose daughter is the uh, skinniest woman in the world. Daughter. Yes. She, yes. Yes. At the same time, I found his daughter much more attractive than Kirsten Dunst. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but, I'll go with that, yeah. uh, also, no. that scene yeah. of... Kirsten Dunst. Uh, yeah. the, well, I'm not super that, attracted to Kirsten Dunst, but that woman, no. Uh, well, I will say that, this. Maybe it's because that woman had a personality. Yes. And she made cake! Chocolate cake with milk for some reason. For reasons. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of interesting <laughs> character parts in this film. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you, you get you yeah. get Joel McHale. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, you get the the VH1 guy. Yeah, you got, uh, you got Bruce uh, Bruce Bruce Banner. Campbell returns. Bruce Campbell. Did you guys spot um, Joe Rensler? Donald Rawlings from Chappelle's show has has like one yep. line. It's like, whoa, he's all that guy's pizzas. Virtually all the, the minor, black people in New yeah. York City exist solely to gawk at Spider-Man. It's well, true. See, let's, let's, Other let's than step Robbie. Aside from even even the, even even the black people. So all minorities. The Asian woman playing the violin. All minorities are the Greek chorus of this film. Yes, there's probably something to be said for that. Uh, except and and Robbie. 
as you pointed out, Nick, is uh, is clearly at one point contemplating taking up the mantle of <laughs> yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, because at some point, some guy brings in Spider-Man's suit to the Daily Bugle. Uh, uh-huh. Makes and, a dated and, uh, and J. Jonah Jameson completely lowballs him on the value of the suit. And Robbie's yeah. just looking going, that's a nice looking suit. <laughs> There's also... Yeah. He, at one point, Robbie holds the Yeah, he's like, yeah, I could be Spider-Man. And then looks out the window. The other really strange thing with Robbie, and I don't know what the name of the character Ted Raimi is playing. I don't even know if that's an as- Hoffman. Hoffman. Is that an established character in the comics, or did they just make that up for no, Ted Raimi? established character. Uh, Robbie is. Yeah, no, Robbie obviously is. But at some point, like, Spider-Man, uh, Peter Parker decides to be Spider-Man again, and J. Jon- Jonah Jameson, because he's a gigantic dick, has nailed up Spider-Man's costume. Uh, and there's this part where J. Jonah Jameson turns his, uh, turns around, and there's a sound effect, and you have a shot of Robbie and Ted Raimi looking up, obviously watching Peter Parker steal the suit, because he's not the fucking Flash. (laughs) He can't move so quickly that people can't see him. Most of the reaction shots are people marveling as he moves slowly across the sky, they see Peter Parker rush in, steal the suit in a split second, and say fucking nothing. No, I assumed that he that he webbed it through the window. That he yeah. fired a web through the window and sucked it up into the air. That you he, would be he right never entered the room. Thing. The note. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he well, note. he fired that down, you know, with well, his did, spider well, powers. Did he, like, stick the note I on his Look, this is a guy who like can it. either fire... A web that's he can he can control these webs in completely absurd ways. Remember when he he fires balls of webs that bounce yeah. off of those guys in the in the car? That would be so much more plausible if they were not organic spinnerets. Which I believe. I mean, that oh, might be God. that might be exactly what they are intended. Although I don't think that the sound effect is of the. It's more like a rushing, like what you would say, like if someone were running through the room very quickly. But also, I just much prefer the idea that Ted Raby and Robbie are just watching Peter steal the suit and just say fucking nothing. I mean, that is a much more preferable image. Uh, it makes well, it makes uh, sense for both of their characters. To be fair, yeah. that's the Scooby Doo image yeah. of him like tiptoeing into the room. Um, let's see. Uh, things I want to get to. Oh, when uh, Doc Octopus goes King Kong uh, and is is taking. Uh, <laughs> Uh, wait, Aunt yeah, May. he's taking Aunt May up onto the building. Uh, then mm-hmm. Aunt May uh, hits him with the cane. That oh, was hilarious, yes. and saves Peter. And then, but then there's that very odd se- scene of uh, when she's falling and he swings down and saves her. And then those two women appear, and there's that low shot looking up right at their breasts for just yeah, a, that was just so a weird. second. Yeah, and they're like, "Take <laughs> me with you, take me with you." It's yeah. very strange. I would I would have expected that to be like. Two moderately famous female stars, you know, just like a like a Lucy Lawless in yeah, the first yeah, film. Yeah, Lucy. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. But yeah. It, I I went back and looked at it again, and I didn't recognize either of those women. But it was just hard to tell because their breasts took up the majority of the shot. Yeah. So I want to talk about this scene for reasons that are not the boobs of action. Okay. Um, I also have something what, I want to talk about. Here. Okay. We'll see if it's the same I think thing. we all do. Aunt, Aunt May plummets several mm-hmm. stories twice. She's a tough old bird. There is no way in hell she survives that fall. I mean, my, I'm more willing. Aunt May's defining characteristic in the comics is that she is prone to heart attacks. <laughs> she's a frail and she's like, got fragile my, bird I, bones. I... <laughs> 
my whole problem with that particular scene and the scene proceeding at the bank is that Aunt, Aunt May's, you know, she's she's at her most human when she's in the home, trying, in, the, in the birthday trying scene. Trying to scam a bank for a toast. Yeah. In that scene, she's like this, she's like incredibly campy 60s Aunt May who's like clutching her pearls and going, oh my Peter, ooh, how, what's going on? She's Irish also. <laughs> I only have a few accents. Uh, Derek's become oh, no! a It's happened! <laughs> For those of you playing at home, Derek's uh, screen icon is Lou Zealand, so... And he seems to have stopped. Yeah. Maybe he's... Lou Zealand is the Muppet who throws the fish. Everyone knows who Lou Zealand is. It had not even occurred to me that people might not know who Lou Zealand is. <laughs> it had not even occurred to me that that was a possibility. God damn it, it's moved closer, enough. you son of a bitch! <laughs> I know you're in on that. <laughs> also, it looks like he doesn't have. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> it looks like he doesn't have legs anymore. Anyway, I think Patrick was saying no, something. He doesn't have legs. Puppets <laughs> don't have legs. I think well, Patrick was saying legs. something. Hey, Patrick. Rolf has yes. legs. Fozzie Bear has legs. So, uh, so uh, Aunt May. I mean, it, again, I, I might as well get into this now. Is that? She, yeah, she's she's another sort of weird '60s throwback. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it isn't. Like, it's very similar to the whole way the plot of the movie is. And totally, it'll sometimes feel like it's a big, campy 60s movie. And then sometimes it'll feel like it's a very serious sort of trying to be serious. Like it's an episode of Dawson's Right, and, and it's kind of... She, in that way, to me, she's very representative of the weird pinballing tone of this movie. Because she goes from being a very serious sort of hurt woman who's experienced a lot of pain in her life... And then she becomes a cartoon character version of an old lady. Yes, like when when Joe, Joe McHale sees like a single dollar coin fall out of Doc Ock's bag, and he goes to pick it up, yeah. and she smacks his hand. Yeah, I mean the person who 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 pulled away from Peter upon learning that he may have had something to do with Ben's death is not the same person who would like smack Joel McHale's hand. In the middle of a giant, violent bank I mean, robbery. you know, it's, it's all about problem context. That, like, I, I, I have totally different reactions to uh, in, in different situations. Uh, she's a full-spectrum character in some regard. Mm-hmm. I, I would also say um, the other thing I found unbelievable about that scene was, now, Patrick, your, your 1960s point holds true, because if this were truly a film set in the mid-2000s, Aunt, Aunt May would have had no trouble getting another mortgage <laughs> the house with no true. assets and collateral that related. She would have gotten uh, so many fucking especially toasters. Especially in 2004. Yeah. Oh, my God. They would have, they would have given her extra yeah. toasters. Also, anyone who robbed a bank would not find sacks of gold coins. Gold coins. <laughs> also, he only makes off with, like, two bags of them. That can't, that's, like, a couple, like, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars, maybe? That's why he's such a great scientist. He could assemble all that stuff on yeah. the cheap. <laughs> but again, I, that, that entire sequence, again, goes back to the issue with the overwhelming coincidence of this movie. The entire fact that there's even this thing going on between Spider-Man and Doc Ock and this bank relies entirely on the fact that Aunt May and Peter decided to go to this bank, and completely apropos of nothing, this is also the bank that the arms decided to rob. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. again, even more apropos of nothing, Aunt May just happens to be the person that the arms decide to take hostage. I am not attributing anything to Doc Ock anymore. It's all those fucking arms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
the, the last thing that I'll, I'll say about Aunt May, because we, we do have a I bunch have, of other things I have, to I have one final thought on Aunt May after, after you. One more thought. Uh, Aunt May threw out Peter's fucking comic books. Yeah, that's bullshit, Aunt May. That, that bothered me a lot. Oh, I just threw those out. Weird. Oh, I this threw isn't the 60s things. anymore. That, back then, people didn't know that they were worth anything. You could throw out baseball cards and comic books, and it was a realistic story to tell to your grandchildren. But uh, my gr- there's no my excuse for that now. Yeah. My grandmother, God, God rest her soul, uh, threw away my dad's comic books when he was like 18, 19, and that was like a point of contention. I can oh, imagine. My grandmother threw out my yeah. uncle's knowing baseball your dad, cards, I imagine that was a he had point a... of hundreds of dollars. Yeah, I, knowing your dad, I yeah. imagine he had a pretty impressive collection. I mean, e- even moving aside the whole time issue of it, it's just weird because it's just kind of dickish. It's like, what, where are some of the stuff that I thought was Although there? She oh, I threw it away, away without asking you. To be fair, she does That's give them away. Ma- she doesn't throw them out. Yeah. That's Aunt May's last scene in the film. The last thing <laughs> she does is throw away her or give away her beloved nephew's comic book. Without asking him. Well, yeah, without asking. as she's moving out of the house that's been foreclosed on. I mean, Fair she enough. could give them to him. You would think that she would sell them, but, you know. Yeah. They're probably worth <laughs> some money. Uh, going she back to the, the kid from across the street in comic books. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Nick had a final I thought. I did. Uh, I want, I, there's oh, one I other thing about uh, the bank, the bank job. Uh, I think we alluded to this slightly. But, uh, so, he King Kongs Aunt May, and they're up in a skyscraper, and Peter is fighting him. Uh, and he decides to do, like, a cannonball special at, uh, at yeah. Doc Ock, and Doc Ock's gonna stab him, and the only reason that he survives is that Aunt May sees this and says, I don't know if she actually says it, but it eventually goes, you brute, and hits him with, you yeah. dreadful, dreadful man. man. It's, how it's, dare you. How dare you. And smacks him with the umbrella, his head. which is, yeah. first of all, hilarious that that's the only reason that Spider-Man is not dead at that point. Well, his spider sense might have. But his spider been. sense doesn't help at all because earlier in the movie, like he's getting smacked with uh, with backpacks and things. It doesn't seem to have any effect other than that one time he doesn't get hit by a car. Um, his spider sense and he's is, able to is... tell that that the the train is running out of track, presumably his spider... using his. I thought that was spider vision. His spider sense is seriously a wall in this movie. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but but my then favorite part is so after he saves Aunt May and they're sort of descending down there, and then the booby extras are going to be a lust, lusty after him. Uh, he says something like, "We did a we, we make a good pair, or we did a good job," and she very rightly says, "We." Because she understands that she is the only reason that this day is saved. She is taking all of the credit, rightfully so. Yeah. Spider Man, you incompetent fool. Yeah, Aunt May. Moving um, on. Um, yeah, so a, a, a couple other things. I think that there are there are a few things we, we still need to cover, uh, and I'll just I'll lay out the outline for them briefly. Um, we should talk about uh, the uh-huh. train scene. Yes. We should talk about the sun. Yeah. <laughs> and we should probably talk about... Uh, about a couple of fun cameos um, as well. Uh, before, so let's let's uh, go ahead. Just very quickly, I want to talk about that jump <laughs> zoom onto the penthouse that Harry is in, where there's those like three quick cuts at at uh, like Dutch angles uh, to to the, this kind of like gothic top of a building, and then the very weird butler who has like two lines and. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Says, what's it, well, oh God, what's his name? I your father it only obsessed over his work. 
Well, I remember because that, that scene, Harry's was... Harry's being very, he's got like all these like articles in front of him. Yeah, and about he Spider-Man. just hit the desk because he's angry. I'm like, can't you just hire private investigators? <coughs> I can do this if myself. Spider Man touched him. He humiliated him. He clearly has weird issues. Um. Yeah, well, you see, the jump cuts make more sense when you realize that that building was designed by, uh, by Ivo Schneider. <laughs> who, uh, you know, what? Did, did a lot of unnecessary surgery. Ghostbusters, dude. Oh, Ghostbusters. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. It goes there. Uh, it, goes is it down. possible that Aunt May is actually, in that scene, saying that Spider-Man did do all of the work, that she's questioning why she should be even... Be included I'm really he's the not real sure hero. why no. she says what she's saying. It's a very confusing. I, okay. The, uh, it, the she, she it sounded. I I heard it as indignation. The way that she said yeah. we. It's possible that is, that is what it sounds. It's like. It's possible but, that the intent is that she's trying to give him all the credit. Certainly, as yeah. you have that very obvious speech that she gives later about how yeah. great Spider-Man is. That might make more sense. But the way that uh, that the actress whose name I've forgotten at this point. Rosemary, Rosemary Harris, Harris. Uh, delivers it. Definitely sounds like indignation that Spider-Man is including himself in Who Saved the Day. Yeah. Shall we talk about no, the train right. scene? Yes. One second. The courtly Southern butler's name is Bernard. 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 That was my great-grandfather's uh, name. Go home, Bernard. I'm going to drink scotch. I'm going to drink Maker's <laughs> Mark. He loves um, all I can afford. He yes. loves that scotch and he yes. loves his hair. Yeah. Beautiful hair. But, the train. Yeah, so yes. where is this okay. train? There, and there are several problems there? with this train. I don't understand. Okay, well, well let, let, let's back up for a second and just talk about trains in New York in I general. I know. So, Stephanie, New York is... give us a lesson. Okay, so so we're in Manhattan. Um, Manhattan is famous for its public transit train system. Specifically, it is famous for its subway. Yes. <laughs> it does not, however, have an elevated well, train. It used to. That okay yeah but this is 2004 no no like in like the 19 early 1900s oh okay yeah when I say it the, used the to elevated, I mean it really yeah. used yeah. to okay the elevated train is a Chicago yeah. trope not a not a New York trip that being said we'll, we'll say okay movie well, we'll, there we'll, are, get, we'll I mean, give there you are this elevated uh, in like Queens metros or I mean uh, when you get out to Queens but they're yeah. very clearly not in Queens but we'll give it to them just in the same way we give fake architecture in other cities mm-hmm. a bit of a pass. Yeah, Toronto looks like New York City. Weird. Everyone knows that. Yes, yes. totally, totally. Um, okay, so the train sequence. Uh, the obligatory third act action <laughs> sequence. Thoughts? I just like that Phil Lamar is at the front of the train <laughs> and he doesn't <laughs> get right. a fucking credit. Really? Yeah. I did he not notice have any lines. I- he doesn't have any lines, but yeah, he's, yeah. he's one of the passengers at the front is of the Is he? Time. I missed him entirely. Joey Diaz is not half as famous as Phil Lamar, and he gets a line. But to be I fair, feel... Joey Diaz looks exactly like the stereotypical New York dude. <laughs> I feel yeah. like my feeling on the train scene is that it's something that you have happen a lot in action movies, and superhero movies can be very prone to them in particular. It's very daring-do action for the sake of forcing in that daring do action Absolutely. it doesn't really add anything new like we don't learn anything new about peter we don't really know anything new about doc ock um did he freeze you, to know, you guys we learned that yes. peter will sacrifice himself to sailors okay we learned that new york loves spider-man yep. 
We really uh, to, already to, know to that. A year to continue his, his point. Um, I don't know. I yeah, I mean, like, like there, it, there is a why sense we that it's, it is just this set piece that's kind of inserted Millie yeah. Willie into the third act. But, Crap. like, you might want to <laughs> put it in. in I'll be right back. Did you just say Nilly Willy? He did. Let's, I, let's, okay, let's sorry, go on, go on. Nilly Willy. That's my favorite phrase. Oh, okay. I've, Willy Willy. Willy. Yeah. Patrick. I've um, only heard Willy Nilly. It's fine, it's fine, go on. Nilly Willy, yeah. Um, Derek Nilly Willy Long. No, I've lost my thought. <laughs> no, uh, put it, putting it in, in context, context, I mean, I remember, and maybe this is just 18-year-old me, uh, but I remember being extremely impressed by this sequence. Oh yeah! Like, I, I'm I'm not sure if, um, it just in terms of like comparable like big action set pieces in comic book films, if there had been one that was quite this, I think technically advanced yet. Um, I mean, advanced in not only in a technological sense, but you know, in in terms of its just its construction. I think as a whole, it's it's pretty well put together. I mean, in terms of, we, we get a clear sense of where the characters are for one. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a kind of actual sort of deadline, if you will, like the, the train can't reach Mm -hmm. the end of the tracks. Um, Mm -hmm. so as its own, like mini narrative, I feel like it, it works really well, but yeah, I absolutely agree with Patrick's point. Um, that he was making before we lost him. We may be about, we may be about to get him back in time. He's coming back. Yeah. Uh, I th- I think that the the thing that's what you mute, muted. There you, you go. You 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 talk about the idea of we hadn't seen the that level of technical sophistication, and it, it's true we hadn't. I, I think it's a really interesting comparison that one year later, Batman Begins came out, and that film also climaxes with a runaway yeah. train sequence. Um, slight the, the difference. Quick show note that you're. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I actually rambled on for about a minute and a half <laughs> when I vanished. Yeah, I, I, I got uh, the Yes, yeah, so you're going to make sure time. you cut that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the you know, Batman Begins has this runaway train sequence. In Batman Begins, you know, it's it's clearly a, a final act action set piece, but there is also you know a very clear plot reason why mm-hmm. it's happening. So the the events that happen on the train are absolutely crucial to both the film's plot and to the character's thematic yeah. journey. And I would say the Spider-Man 2 train set piece is more impressive as a piece of, you know, action filmmaking, but it's less impressive as a piece yeah. of story. Well, I, I will say Lillian and I have written some uh, superhero spec stuff. And some train sequences. Uh, no, despite all my protestations. Um, <laughs> and one thing we actually did run into trouble was we wrote a scene that was basically this. It, it wasn't with a train, but it was the same sort of thing where we we put it there because we felt structurally it had to be there, and it looked cool and it was actiony. Mm-hmm. And eventually we cut it out because we realized it was a completely pointless scene. It was just there yeah. to look cool, yeah. basically. And I think I think that's a major problem there. And I mean. Even the even sort of the plot justification for why Doc Ock is after Spider-Man at that point is pretty weak. He essentially goes to Harry and demands his precious tritium, his MacGuffin, <laughs> his MacGuffin medal, uh, and Harry's like, "Get me Spider-Man, and I will, and uh, I'll, I'll give it to you." So he doesn't really fucking give a shit about Spider-Man. Spider-Man's just some guy. He doesn't really have any particular 
interest in Spider-Man. It's just entirely Harry there. Completely incidental. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Not even clear if he's even aware of Spider-Man up until that point. Oh, well, they had... Well, they, they had their I guess, but he scene, didn't even... Which was... Um, which was yeah, which was a minor nuisance and did not interfere with Otto. He got away with his money. He was just some, yeah, some guy. Tridium is a real thing. Is it precious? precious? Yes. Precious tritium. It's a radioactive isotope of hydrogen. Hydrogen. Um, the train scene does give us Spider Jesus, though. <laughs> we do get Spider Jesus. I love his Spider Jesus face, which is. Uh, him essentially trying to pass the biggest bowel movement of his life. That is that is the that is the expression that Tobey Maguire chooses for this. It's, it's very strange, like, but it also yeah. comes into the problem that I feel like a lot of superhero sort of things do, where like I'm not strong enough to stop this train or pick up yeah. this continent or whatever. And the solution is, well, try harder. So yeah. it doesn't work the yeah. first time, so yeah. let's just do it again, and this time it works. This time I'll stop this it's train. Probably, this just, time it, I'll pick up this continent. Everything about the he way did, that he... Sorry, go on, Stefan. I was gonna say, he did adjust his, his tactics, though, because first he tried to, to just yeah. jut his feet into the yes. track, resulting yeah. in falling track and presumably several yes. dead pedestrians. <laughs> Second, he fired... Two yeah. webs into brick buildings, which tore and sent brick tumbling to the Ooh. streets, presumably killing several pedestrians. But the third time, he's shooting several yeah. webs and getting, like, multiple points of resistance. And then just holding on, and he's not even wrapping them around his hands. You can just sort of see, sort of, they're, like, made out of, like, cush texture. And his hands uh-huh. are sort of dangling yeah. there while he's doing his Jesus pose. Yeah. Well, he, he can stick to anything. He doesn't need to wrap anything around anything. Isn't the the solution to this very obvious, though, that you fire the webs onto the track and into the wheels of the train? And shouldn't he be doing it from the back of the train? Because if you're on a motorcycle and you step on the... and you use the brake on the front wheel before you use the brake on the back wheel, you're going to flip and kill yourself. (laughs) Wouldn't that derail the train, though? Would that stop it? No, if he does it from the back... Doing it from the front would derail the train because you're stopping the front, but not the back. So the back is Although, still going to try and move the, forward. It's the reason the Joker's Mack truck flips in the Dark yeah. Knight. I'll take I'll, mm-hmm. I'll take your word on it. Sure. Yeah, it's I, a I'm bad saying plan. That if he That's not the how, it's the not how physics works. To the buildings, then but fi- has, you know, you guys know what? That would be an appropriate si- assignment for Dr. Connors to assign here. <laughs> in a to be fair, physics class. <laughs> to be fair. If there is a runaway train. Yeah. To be fair, this is in a New world York, with, yeah. and here's the good transition, <laughs> suns in the palm of one's hand. A perpetual uh, yeah, sun. Perpetual sun. Impervious to heat and magnetism. Uh, God. The sun. Perpetual sun. I, what? Just, I'm just so aware. not bothered by the sun. So bothered by the sun. Okay, uh, I, so here's here's a, a thing about the sun. I'll, I'll say this, then, dude, you, you, you can roll with this. The sun is, I believe, the first instance that we will see of this theme that recurs through and has continued to recur through many films over the last decade. The idea of some scientific breakthrough being the key to renewable, sustainable mm-hmm. energy. The first action film of which uh, to feature this theme, I believe, was The Saint. Oh. Um, was that before Chain called, Reaction? It's called Fusion Plot. Ah, good, I, good one. I think Chain Reaction maybe, was a couple years earlier. I think they were around the same time. It was close. Close. 
But um, th- this is a theme that you know you, yeah. you see it again in Dark Knight Rises. You see it in the Avengers. Mm-hmm. You see it in Iron Man. I mean, th- this this keeps coming mm-hmm. up, um, which I think is sort of an, an interesting reflection of the times in which the films yeah. were made. Now, later films intelligently figure out a way to do this with a nuclear <laughs> reactor or something that doesn't pretend to be science. <laughs> the cosmic cube, as opposed to. A sun in the palm of my hand. <laughs> Go ahead, douche. Um, uh, I don't remember what I was... Oh, I was going to ask. You, when when Mary Jane wants to kiss Peter in the coffee shop after she has kissed the astronaut and determined that it is not as exciting as when she kissed Spider-Man, do you think that she is trying to determine whether kissing Peter would be as exciting as kissing Spider-Man or trying to determine whether he is Spider-Man because kissing him would be the same? If she were trying to determine that, she would have bent over back. Also, she would have had to have been attacked by some dudes in an alley and almost raped. Yes. Uh, yes. I but, uh, I remember when I watched it this last time, I read it as the latter of those two options. That she, at that point, had some suspicions and thought that maybe he was Spider-Man. I don't know. I can't remember why I would have thought that she would have thought that. But also, I don't really care about anything that's happening with Mary Jane at any point. <laughs> Fair enough. But I, I thought that she was just trying to... Uh, to see if it would excite her the same way that the Spider-Man kiss would. And it wasn't until just now that it occurred to me that she may have had some inkling that uh, he was Spider-Man. Um, another thing I want to mention is wh- there was there was a mo- uh, film that we've already done that I said seemed to have a lot of references to the Matrix. And there are, certainly seemed to be several in here. Probably Blade. I, I can't remember what it was. Blade, I mean, too, probably, we certainly talked about okay. we certainly talked about Blade in terms of sort of having that similar kind of aesthetic of like you know the dark underworld of too, leather leather. People. I wasn't on the Blade one. Um, leather people, but uh, I I felt like the arms were very distinctly the the same kind of robots as that you would see in the Matrix. Yeah, and his jump from the building. Uh, uh, when he says "I'm oh, back," yeah. was a very distinctly Neo kind of ah, jump. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas, like a more Trinity from the beginning of the Matrix jump with her sort of leg up, that that seems more of a Spider-Man-y kind of a pose. Mm-hmm. Well, but we saw that Spider-Man-y kind of a pose in the first Spider-Man and movie. I mean, there are there are so many moments in this film that are callbacks to the. It's first almost film. as though yeah, they I mean, were made by the same people. I, I know. It's I mean, the, like the, that. the villain is basically the villain from the first movie. I mean, this is the thing that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. They are emotionally, they are surrogate father figures who are good men who have bad things inside of them, but don't want to be evil. I mean, they're the same. They just have different weapons. Mm-hmm. Essentially, um, I, I, I'm actually certain. I think it was the first Spider-Man movie that I had compared to the Matrix because the shot that. I, I distinctly remember was that Trinity shot in the opening of the Matrix where she goes through the window, spins in midair, tumbles down the, the steps, and then sits with the guns pointed at the uh, the window that she's just jumped through. And I think there's that yeah. same spot in the first spot in that same shot in the first Spider Man film, isn't there? Where he jumps through a window and then he's expecting Green Goblin to come after him. Maybe. Or am I thinking of a completely different film? Uh, there, there is something similar in the climactic fight with the goblin where he gets knocked through like a 
I don't even know what the hell that building was. Okay. Some old <laughs> decrepit okay. building. I was thinking that it was, it was the, laying yeah. on the ground, firing the, the first Spider-Man remember. film. But I'm, I'd have to go back and listen to the first podcast. <laughs> anyway, when I was thinking Trinity at the beginning, I was thinking very specifically sort of that first bullet time shot where she jumps up in the yeah. air in that crouch. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Spider-Man in the comics has always had a lot of fun contorting Peter into very mm-hmm. interesting poses as he swings, oh, or, yeah. particularly when Todd McFarlane <laughs> yeah. is throwing him. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so we, we have the MacGuffin son, mm. which makes no sense physically, um, and also does not reinforce anything thematic about any of the characters. No. That's its real problem, is that it's just, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not really, yeah, well, it's like, maybe auto, but not really even there. Yeah, and then, and then he drowns the son. Look, we can, so we can all talk about drowning the sun and why it's an insane thing. Does anyone have any specific nitpicks with this besides the general idea that it's a sun being drowned? Really. Um, it's a very comic booky explanation of things. Yeah, it's, that's all I got. It's not so much the drowning the sun; it's the lack of steam that has always bugged me for the last decade. Yeah. It has always been the lack of steam. I feel like I, mean, I, I feel like if he had thrown that sun into the Hudson River and there had been steam, I don't think I would object to it. It's the well, fact it's, it's that like he in, throws a sun in and there's seemingly no reaction whatsoever. Actually, you know what? I that take one, it back. I do have one specific thought about the sun, and it just occurred to me, is that the sun feels like it's only there to add a certain degree of stakes that would otherwise be completely missing. Because Otto's Otto's deal really is, I want to rebuild my thing. But the thing is, unless that thing is going to explode, so what? Yeah, Yeah, if that thing was a better blender, no one would It's only there because we need to be afraid of Otto and what Otto's going to do for some reason. Otherwise, the movie really just is really is just Peter kind of moping around for a while. See, but that that's the thing though. You you rob Otto of agency. Right. You make him like the the pawn of his His arms, arms. have opinions. <laughs> yeah. If if he himself I mean and it's a very easy story to tell. Okay, so what happens? Uh, his experiment goes wrong. His wife is killed because of his own uh, hubris, mm-hmm. his, his own excessive ambition. And he ends up in a horrible accident that could very easily leave him, if not brain damaged, then horribly traumatized. Like, you make this guy a dangerous person, and then you don't really need the MacGuffin son. Yeah. It... But because you're, the film is so insistent on saying, no, no, he's not a bad guy. He's just controlled by these evil arms that he built for some <laughs> Why reason. Do, just to kind of unpack this a little bit, what do you think is this impulse of trying to redeem all these spider villains. Because like I said, in the comics, there's literally only one person who has this thing. And in the movies, including up until the Amazing Spider-Man movies, they seem to be wanting to make us feel sorry for all of them in a way that I can't really square with any other Marvel movie. Even Loki does not... Even I I don't feel this... They don't feel like even Loki is trying to make me feel that bad for him. And he's Loki. I've got an idea, but I want to hear what other folks have. I mean, to say. I think part of it is is tone. There's a certain there's a certain lightness to the Spider-Man films that you don't necessarily get in some of the other 
Marvel films. It's it's kind of hard to describe. I mean, it's not it's not like musical light, but there there is there is like like you were saying, Patrick. Until the that, third movie. Like, ah, well, there you go. There's a the dance sequence. I forgot about that one. Uh, um, yeah. um, I I do feel like the, the audience is supposed to be having fun in these films, whereas in like the X Men films, you know, the audience isn't having fun. They're concerned about the characters. Like, in this, you're supposed to be concerned about the characters, but then, hey, look at all these mobs falling. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's that's a tone that is, is like, attached to Spider-Man in some way. Mm-hmm. It isn't just, like, Raimi's mm-hmm. style. Um, he doesn't yeah. play well as, like, a grim and He, he doesn't, yeah. but in the comics, he's never... They, they don't do it in the comics, although that just might be a comic book thing in general. Okay. I hmm. think... My... my Suspicion is that it's someone involved in the production. I'm not necessarily going to lay this at the screenwriter or Raimi or who, uh, trying too hard to uh, sort of highlight the with great power comes great responsibility theme that's sort of so central to Spider-Man, um, and that these are other these are other people that have had great power thrust upon them and they did it the wrong way. But I feel like there's an, there's another way to do that theme without constantly going back to the same, uh, well, we're kind of crazy and we have split personalities, and but we're good people fundamentally, thing that they do repeatedly throughout all of these movies so fucking much. I think all of that is true. I think that the, the other aspect of it is, you know, these... The thing that I thought repeatedly while I was watching this was this is a movie that was built from the ground up, built by brick, or brick by brick, to appeal to the widest possible audience that it could get, and to not challenge that audience at all. Like, the, the message of the film is like, hey, sit back and have fun. This is a fun film. And, like... The, there's no pushing. There's no trying to make the audience, you know, think beyond the the immediate rush of, oh my god, we're on a runaway train. Um, and because we, we've, you know, one of the things that Peter deals with through these films is the loss of his uncle, which is for all intents and purposes the loss of his father. And he repeatedly in, fi- in these films gravitates toward father figures, first in Norman in the first one, and with Otto in the second one. If Otto is anything less than a good man corrupted by bad science, if he is in fact a deeply morally flawed film uh, character, then Peter himself is faced with the dilemma of identifying as a father figure a deeply morally flawed man, which forces the audience to reconcile in its collective mind the idea that a good person could be attracted to kind of a bad person for fundamentally good and understandable reasons. That's a moral gray zone that is outside of the scope of the film that they're Particularly trying to Particularly in 2004. <laughs> yes. Which kind of makes it back to the question we were wrestling with at the beginning of the podcast of a lot of us feel like we liked this initially, but going back on it, our expectations have lowered. I mean, not all of us. I know that Nick has disliked this film from the outset. <laughs> and has made his point that he feels this way quite loudly. We've all caught yes. up to him. But For those of you I at home, I don't like this movie. 
But we're going to have fun when we talk about Spider-Man 3. Right. And I think that's actually, someone kind of talked about it earlier, and it's kind of the point, is that what did we have to compare it with? We had Daredevil and the Punisher to compare it with. <laughs> we had the theatrical right. cuts. <laughs> For the record, I want to point out I was incredibly right, and you all doubted me. Um, so good. But I think that if we look at this in context, it really was pushing boundaries that it hadn't been pushed before. And I'm going to go to a quote by Alan Moore, which I very rarely do, because he and I don't agree on a lot of things. Where he, is this he said a that quote to me when that I spoke is going to, him the to other summon day. a snake god? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, where he was talking about Stan, the way Stan Lee made comics, he revolutionized comics not because he made the characters three-dimensional, but because they made them two-dimensional, because they needed to be two-dimensional before they could be three-dimensional. Hmm. And while I think that's a little dismissive, I actually think he's got a fairly good point in that it's sort of like... I, I've been reading a lot of 60s Marvel because um, they did Marvel Unlimited, did that promotion for San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, yeah. And you look back on it, and it's so dated. But if you talk to anyone who was around at that time, like our parents, they talk about it as though it was this amazing revelation, something they had, yeah, they had never seen characters like this before. And it's kind of, I suspect it's the same thing, where it's like, we look back, it looks dated. At the time, it was cutting edge. Yeah, this is a, a pattern that I see play out in, in all genres, it seems, and all mediums, that as, as there becomes more... Uh, art available within a medium, the you expect the characters to get more fleshed out. My girlfriend was just talking about this the other day about Sex in the City, that at the time, the characters were, were very uh, progressive because they were women who were openly talking about sex and they didn't need to feel ashamed of it or anything. But now, she looks back on it and they're all really selfish and, and like, just simple, mm -hmm. uh, overly simplistic characters. And I feel like this is true in all genres and uh i mean I, I can't think of a specific example but uh you know the longer we go on the more that a creator a writer has to do with the characters the the more depth you need uh in order for it to feel like they're actually telling a story that seems real i'm not sure if i buy really that. yeah i mean like i i, I buy the idea that in the comic medium and in film and in television, you know, the the complexity of characters by and large has increased. But at the same time, I don't think that like you know not every character's not every character has to have like a stunningly deep, rich, complex inner life that they struggle with. I mean like you go back and you watch, I mean, it's, I know it's pop entertainment, but you watch Star Wars, you watch Indiana mm -hmm. Jones, you watch, um, you know, the good Star Trek films. Mm -hmm. the, the characters in there, yes, they have internal conflicts, and yes, they are, you know, they are developed to a point of three-dimensionality, but they're not uh, characters that are like... Actually... I have to pause so for a second. For some reason, my recording stopped. I don't know when. What, what time do people have? What time do people have on how long Jim they've been recording? Kirk, especially in Wrath of Khan. Okay, so that's about where I am. I think it just literally stopped. So I don't think it lost anything, but just that might be an issue later. Yeah, I'm starting it up again. But it's not anyway. like stopping him from getting on the Starship Enterprise and going out and doing something else. Yeah. And we, we like him because he deals with those issues. 
But we love him because he gets on the Starship Enterprise and goes out and explores Well, the let me respond to that by talking about Star Wars, because I haven't seen Wrath of Khan in... in... Go ahead. Mine did that earlier. 152. Okay. Okay. All right. Start it up again. Start yeah, up. mine did that earlier at about the five-minute mark, and I caught it after ten seconds, I think. Um, but cool. if Star Wars uh, A New Hope were written today, it would seem extremely simplistic. The, the, the name of the super-secret force that runs the universe is the Force. The... <laughs> the bad guy is a giant black robot guy. The good guy is is an old white man. Uh, the 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 goal. Of, I mean, what's the weapon called? <laughs> it's a lightsaber. Like, what, what we, and a Death Star. Yeah. What do we? What must we rescue from the Death Star? We must rescue the princess. Yeah, it's it's as simple a story as you could possibly get, and it worked at the time. Because no one had told a story like this that, that existed in any kind of culture that wasn't based on Earth. Like, this is an entire other galaxy. Uh, but when you watch Star Wars today, are you thinking to yourself, oh, this was a really fun film for 1977, or are you thinking, oh, man, this is a great film it's, today? It's impossible for me to separate it from the film that I saw as a child. I cannot ever speak objectively about Star Wars. Uh, I, I do think that there's an incredible amount of skill in the writing that he that he conveys uh, complex ideas um, very simply, um, you know, mm -hmm. it, by introducing uh, the the nature of the the conflict between the people who are running from the empire and the empire who's pursuing them. You know, in the first few lines of dialogue from C-3PO when he says like, "Oh, we'll never outrun them this time" or something. You know, like that's that's a skillfully written line, uh, and the the way that he structures the story around these two kind of minor uh, nonsense characters, these two droids, and, and uses them as the connecting thread through uh, the entirety of the film. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of very complex, well done writing going on that I think carries it through uh, today in, in terms of its its. Uh, storytelling power, but I think that if you want to write yes. that kind of story today, you have to do much more complex things with the actual uh, uh, I don't know. You, you just got to spruce it up. I, I, got <laughs> so, I, I mean, if, if we bring it back around to Spider-Man, or, or I'm sorry, sure. uh, Derek, Patrick, and I mean, I, I think it's it's a bit of a fallacy to assume that this this thing that we're talking about that, for lack of a better term, we can just call it narrative complexity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a fallacy to assume that there's like an upward track that goes yeah, up yeah. like a straight okay. line. It's That's a sine fair. wave. Mm -hmm. uh, if if yeah. you watch, pick a random film from 1947. Okay. Chances are the narrative complexity of that film is going to be. Mm -hmm. Incre it's going to be much more complex than 
the average film that you pick from 2014 or 2004. Okay. Dark Passage. That's I fair. Mean, there's Any Humphrey Bogart and, and, noir movie. And I, and I think, you know, and it, yeah, it's a noir, and this is sort of like the typical example of this, but I think it's broader than that in that a lot of the productions that were going on then were actually, I mean, they're based on novels, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, ba- they're based on source sure. material mm-hmm. that is coming out of a, a culture of kind of like what, I mean, I won't get too academic, but um, a professor I know calls this middle-brow modernism, where okay. it was it was kind of fashionable in the 1940s um, to to do things like actually go to the symphony and read novels that were considered like high literature, but not too complex, not like James Joyce, um, but like higher than at the time would have been like comic there, books. And there, so, and so there's an aspiration to the upper there's middle a, There's class a kind of aspirational books. cultural yeah. thing there. And that's, and that's the, that's kind of the context for at least the source material for film production. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a real push toward a kind of like stylistic complexity, or at least a very polished um, technical look to films, but but also um, using film technology for you know artistic purposes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like given given that context, you can you can kind of understand the complexity of the, a lot of the films of the 1940s. And again, it's not all films, um, mm-hmm. but they're mm-hmm. a surprising number. Um, okay. Whereas today, I mean, the industry is, you know, it, it, it looks very different. It's a different context, different industrial yeah. context, a different context in terms of not what is available for adaptation, but what is marketable as adaptation. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so it tends to be like very widely spread properties, um, you know, properties that everybody knows about. Comic book mm-hmm. films, you know, perfect, perfect example. Yeah. And so, you know, like... Star Wars, you know, is kind of an interesting case in that it's basically just Hidden Fortress. It's basically just a Kurosawa yeah. film. Yeah. Um, but it, it is coming out, and, and that film, the you know, the Hidden Fortress, um, I think the, one of the reasons it works for adaptation is um, that there is that, you know, kind of fundamental, you know, through line. And you can talk, talk mm-hmm. about Joseph Campbell all you want, but it's mm-hmm. it's sort of... It's it's easily adaptable. Um, it, it it translated well into the story that George Lucas wanted to tell, yeah. um, and so you sort of have to look at it less as I feel complexity is something that is always getting. It's always improving. You know that that there's some sense that movies that are released today uh, much mm-hmm. more complex, much more you know polished than than anything that that came before. Um, but I, I see what I kind of see what you're saying um, in terms yeah. of yeah. Go ahead. There's nothing if one-dimensional about couches. Couches, Stefan. They had so many pouches. If we go back to the Alan Moore point, mm-hmm. I, I'll buy the idea Blood? that you know you had. Uh, speaking, go, going back to that Alan Moore uh, dimensionality quote, it reminded me of one of my favorites. Uh, our friend uh, Eddie Marvel once said about uh, Harry Potter that Snape was the, the best 80s, character because he's got a lot of three-dimensional yeah. characters. Then Which I think 90s, I think is accurate to a large extent, given when Rob Liefeld was writing two, blood the only two dimensional blood and blood blood and bloodstone and stone blood and heart bloodstone. Oh, 
you know what? You know what he stored in those oh, pouches? He stored his depth of characters. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Kids fucking love him. <laughs> I. Did you say the only two or three dimensional one? Oh. Oh. I think that. I, hmm. Actually, I want to kind of jump off of Harry Potter because the thing I was going to say is, and this is something I've been kind of thinking about as we've been watching this movie, and as I've been thinking about how I relate to Spider Man in general, is that. One of the interesting things I've just noticed about people and Spider-Man is that someone kind of said earlier that he is the most relatable hero. Like, everyone feels like they can kind of relate to Spider-Man. <coughs> but here's the thing. Everyone relates to a different Peter Parker. Because you can see this in the way they changed Peter to become in one more day, where the people... He's not married right, anymore. But the people, my Peter Parker was a young and that, because guy. that's how the people who were running the comics, the comic books at the time, that was their Peter Parker growing up. The thing is, I never knew a Peter Parker that was not married to Mary Jane. Yeah. So that is my Peter Parker. Patrick, who's your Flash? Uh, Wally West. Wally West. Exactly, yep. and that's kind of and that's exactly the point is that Peter, almost more than any other comic book character that I know of, who he is is very different to a lot of people. And it's kind of hard because Dude was commenting he can't decouple Star Wars Mm -hmm. from the movie he saw as a kid. Mm -hmm. Peter is so changed, changes so frequently, and is so wrapped up in the feelings of who we were when we saw it, because it's all about teenage guys, that it... it, I almost think I've ever read a Spider-Man comic. At the, the movie like this, without those glasses of... This is who I was. I was in my late teens, early 20s, and just a raging pile of emotions and hormones. I, it may be difficult to kind of view that. Here we are now in our late 20s, early 30s. We're not those people anymore. I read uh, more Spider-Man comics between the ages of 13 and 17 than in any other. All right, exactly. back to the sun. Uh, also, my Peter Parker is Ben. <laughs> Rogers, so that tells you we're not touching. Me. We're not touching that. That's We're not clone. touching the clone saga. We are not touching it. Yeah. Well, I... I, I know uh, I haven't. Yeah. No, I've read... Yeah, no, there is a crane. There is a... I remember seeing that. Uh, that's a... Uh, for the, rec- for the record... It. For the record, Ben Riley in current comics is living in Houston. No, he isn't. Oh, Kane, Kane is. right. I always get the two mixed up. Yeah, got one's a cl- both of them are clones of Peter Parker. How could you get them mixed oh, up? Oh, I, I do have one more um, nitpick with the, uh, the sun sequence. Mm-hmm. After yeah. it's fallen into the water, what is he swinging on? Yeah, I, I think a crane, <laughs> but it was a poorly composed he, shot. As a general rule, Peter will web sling from nothing. It happens all the yeah. time. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's why he can but only exist ex- in New York City. He he could never do anything in L.A. <laughs> no, well, see, not in this it. one. They... they they show him swinging, and then they establish oh, okay. that there's a crane there. So it's... Yeah. All right. Yeah. Pa- Patrick, I, th- I think your point was well put, and I think that that's a good sort of segue into our uh, our closing thoughts on this this particular enterprise. <laughs> um, since you, you were kind of mid-thought, do you want to uh, to offer your closing thoughts? I will. And, and, you know, I was talking about how I it kind of becomes tricksy because... 
everyone sees Peter differently, you know, and everyone is very protective of yeah. that Peter that they grew up with, which is why it's always a little tricky to make this movie because it's going it's a movie for younger kids, but it's being made by older guys. It's a movie. Yeah, it's a movie for teenagers, but that's kind of where we're talking about how Peter is kind of a very 60s nerd. And while the Mark Webb adaptation has its problems, two things it does not do, three things it does very well is, one, the director has the perfect last name for the movie. (laughs) Two, those two actors have chemistry out the yin-yang. Real (laughs) chemistry. Holy crap, do they have chemistry. And... But the third thing is that it tries to make Peter more like teenagers are today. And it, I've always had this trouble where I, I, Spider-Man was my favorite hero growing up, and I'm not sure I can relate to him anymore. But the, the other final thought I did want to have, aside from sort of my ruminations on the difficulty of connecting Spider-Man, because he is such a mobile character in a way that <coughs> Captain America, Thor, Tony Stark are never going to be. You know, because there's always going to be billionaires. Thor's a god. There And there's not always going right. to be teenagers. But, we're, or rather, we're not always going to be teenagers. But my other thought is That's how true. much it irritates me that this is the Mary Jane the movie has. Because I, I had this discussion with Lillian right after Amazing Spider-Man 2 and the Gwen, version of Gwen Stacy. Mary Jane is one of my favorite comic book love interests. I don't uh-huh. pretend that she's perfect. You know, she's it's kind of the weird model actress, super almost comically hot <clears throat> thing she's got rocking. But I love her because she has never been kidnapped, or rather, never been kidnapped successfully. Because every time they try to kidnap her, she either she smashes the chameleon over the head, she's shot the green goblin when he tried to get near her. Like she is a spitfire. Her first line in the comics is face a tiger, you hit the jackpot. She is this she is this that hair. She is this amazing sort of energetic person who is perfectly willing you to basically You might need to come up Peter, with a new reason you know, why Peter your mopiness is irritating me. So I'm going to go do something else until you stop freaking whining. And yeah. to see or, or that he's living genius. practically in abject poverty. She really is movie. a yeah, it's not that hard. She is barely an animate object. She has so mm-hmm. little agency. It, it just bugs me because I love this female character. And in this movie, in these movies, she she's nothing. She doesn't do anything at any point. You could remove her from the movies entirely, and I'm not really sure it would affect all that much. <laughs> no, I mean, I, could it be that he got his own? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I love that. Right, like the, yeah. Like, the definition of the sexy lamp test that Lillian and I refer to sometimes is if, the great if you could replace the character it's, uh, with it's the see no evil, hear lamp. no evil, uh, speak no evil, and he's sitting on top of a pile it doesn't of change. They're a sexy lamp. And in this case, it's... Uh, please don't... I'm absolutely serious. I, will, I love that lamp so much. That's yeah, I will, I will show you the lamp later. She it's a, a fantastic lamp. That we are willing might break. She doesn't do anything. My final thoughts are all about the astronaut. Crazy. Exactly. I feel like I feel like astronaut Mike Dexter got short changed here. Um, <coughs> and apropos of uh, Patrick's comments about lamps, it seems that Stefan has turned on a lamp and pointed it right at the uh, his camera. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. Wait, are can, you serious? Can you angle your angle your camera at the sun. land? Let, let's wait till after the show. Um, so, yeah. I, a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, um, is that whole marriage? It's been a long time since I've seen Spider-Man Three. Is that whole marriage really that, that uh, Spider-Man ruined really still come right. up at all in us? Uh, Spider-Man 3, because I'm pretty sure J. Jonah Jameson, who already really fucking hates Peter Parker, is the first would probably hold an extra special grudge now that he knows that uh, the love of his son's life ran off to be with him. That's got to sting. And also, why, why not, uh, how about Mary Jane marries him, because he's, you know, a handsome, rich, successful astronaut, and have a torrid love affair with Peter Parker when he's at work. He's in space. How would he know? It's the perfect affair. He could never find out. Pretty sure it's dropped. I love it. Um, and again, I think I brought this up briefly. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson was fucking insane not to name his son J. Jonah Jameson Jr. Because that is the perfect junior name that has ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I do love that, yes. I was very confused when I first found out that Jim Gordon's wife was named Barbara Gordon. Space Affair. That can't be right. I'll pitch it to Lillian. (laughs) Speaking of that, it always confused me... It always confused me that in the Dark Knight, uh, it was the son. Jo- was it? No, Joffrey was the kid in the first movie. Uh, the son that Jim uh, seemed to be most concerned about, just because it, it I feel like Gordon, I mean, I'm sure that little Jim Gordon Jr. has James some role Barbara in the comics, two but I don't think he's a big James deal the way Barbara Gordon. Really, that Gordon family—it's got issues. And then you realize that the Gorons are just massive narcissists. Uh, we did spend a lot of like, time talking about Batman movies. Because like, we talked about the train sequence, you brought up the uh, the semi-jackknifing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, certainly, certain, as we said, the Dark... Uh, not the Dark Knight, Bat- Batman Begins is going to come out a year after this. Bat Knight Begins! Alright, so, anyway, she should have married astronaut uh, yeah. J. Jonah Jameson, oh, yeah. a.k.a. Mike Dexter, a.k.a. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah they do. Um, yeah, it, this isn't a podcast about the Dark Knight. Of course, it's not a podcast about Star Wars either, that didn't stop us. Yeah. They're, yeah, it's true. They're good for comparability in this time period. Yeah. Bat Night Begins. Yeah. <laughs> the Bat Night Rises. Moving on. Okay. Derek Long, final thoughts? Um, I, I'm just still baffled that this this film was... I mean, I'm baffled isn't the right word, but... Such a better really, movie than really Peter and It really tells you, like, how, how much the comic book film landscape has changed in the past 10 years, that this was such a huge hit in 2004. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, overall, I, I, I think it's 
it's an okay film. You know, it's it's probably in the middle of the pack of the the films we've watched for mm-hmm. me at least. Um, the first act really drags, um, and you know, I definitely agree with you, Stephanie. Like, we really start to like not like Peter <laughs> um, mm-hmm. at at about at about uh, at about forty minutes in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's also you know. The, I think I remember hearing the same thing about Spider Man Three when it came uh, out. I think at the time, to, like to Marvel. I mean, it seems like we're really we're starting to enter a phase where <laughs> yeah, um, we're starting to see all of the really kind of big productions. So. I wouldn't be surprised. How much did this yeah, movie make? Um, it was a lot, wasn't it? Lots. Yeah, and yeah, it was like hundreds of millions. It, it of dollars. made like nine hundred million dollars, I think. Yeah. Oh, sorry, no, not that much. Yeah, uh, it was the budget was two hundred million, and yeah, the box office was seven hundred eighty-three million. I mean, I remember this being yeah, the most yeah. expensive movie that had been made, wasn't it? Two hundred million, like. Yeah, it was. Cl- it yeah. was close anyway, and. and uh, yeah, that was like two hundred eighty, wasn't it? Something. Yeah, and and, and re- remember, uh, adjust for inflation. Yeah. 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 I think those movies cost actually cost more than the Avengers. <coughs> uh, I mean, it's it was a big yeah. deal, yeah. But uh, yeah. Dude. I mean, I don't think that that the uh, we can't even limit this to just being uh, a comic book film because this was the huge summer blockbuster. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I guess what I was trying to get at earlier about uh, how art becomes more complex is not just. Um, complexity and depth of character but how much of the world that we occupy it reflects and at the time i don't remember anyone talking about the the female character in this being two-dimensional i don't remember anyone i i i don't feel like it was part of the the monocultural response uh, to be fair that's all that's only even like entered popular criticism in like the last two or three years yeah and that's what i'm saying that that like we we barely touched on the fact that there are that the minorities in this are almost entirely like comic relief or to to comment on yeah to comment on spider-man and that's that's really absurd from uh the perspective of a film that is trying to reflect the culture that it that it exists in. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know how to sum up my thoughts on this movie, except that I... To watch it, I bought... According, according to the Googling I've copy. just done, Spider-Man 3 uh, is officially the most expensive I had, movie. I was in a used but, uh, music store that also Avatar had movies, for one and I found a $4 copy of more. this movie some movies we don't really and decided that, that I would not buy it because that was too much money to spend. And then I found a $3 copy <laughs> anyway. in the same store and thought, okay, I will spend $3 on this film. <laughs> Damn. Admittedly, this is only the I, second uh, time I watched it. I saw it opening weekend or whatever. He's got that Muppet to watch yeah, out for him. So uh, I'll, uh... It's got murder in its eyes. Yeah. Uh, we could talk... Yeah. We could spend hours talking about Hollywood accounting. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll I'll try to wrap wrap up my thoughts. Does Derek get to talk? Um, I did. Derek oh, did, did talk. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, pay attention. Watch out for you. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's pointing back. Uh, I enjoyed that movie. Yeah, it's dead Muppet eyes. Um, I, 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 I joked at the beginning that I was Mister Negative because I am hard on this film. Um, I don't think. Yeah, nice, Derek. I don't think it's a. Uh, it's not a bad film in the way that the uh, the fir- the Captain America film is <laughs> oh, a bad film. I, I, I still think that's the worst film we've watched. Because um, I, I at least laughed at Corman's Fantastic <laughs> Yeah, that's Four. fair. Um, yeah. That jeweler was yeah. pretty funny. Um, Shut yep. up right now. <laughs> the, um, the problem, I think... Like it, it's it's an exceptionally well made. It's very movie. pretty, and and there there are some scenes that are very well done. You know, we we touched on it briefly. the uh, the emergency room scene, the surgery mm-hmm. scene, where the arms come to life. That's a perfect scene for what it's trying to do. It's really well done. Um, the the problems you know come in in script and characterization, and you know the. The casting mistakes made in film one continue to haunt yeah. film two. I think, though, if, if we, again, we, we step back and we try to contextualize. So, comes out in 2004. What are the films that we watched between Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2? So, we watched Daredevil, Hulk, Punisher. And... No, uh, yeah, X2. Uh, yeah. So it's Daredevil, you know, X2, Hulk, Punisher, yeah. yeah, and Daredevil director's cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had um, you had X2 in there uh, as a, a pretty good film, but then three films that were you know at best deeply flawed as the the comic book movie industry was trying to figure out, okay, Spider-Man 2 was a massive hit, or Spider-Man was a massive hit. What does it mean? In that respect, it's not surprising that Spider-Man 2 decided, well, maybe the best way to replicate the success of Spider-Man is to replicate Spider-Man. It's a very similar film in a lot of ways. I mean... Plot beats, relationships, it's... A lot of scenes echo the scenes in the previous film. I mean, this yeah. is... It's almost... It's... The scene of, uh... It's... Ex- um, the scene of Doc Ock leaving Spider-Man on the bed looks exactly like Spider-Man leaving Green Goblin on the bed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a sequel. It is every criticism that you have about a sequel. It's just echoing the first film. It's just falling back on the first film. But at that point in time, may- maybe that's kind of what they needed to do because people were still kind of figuring out you know, what what is a good comic book film? What is a successful comic book film? And as we'll see over the next several films that we watched, it's an ongoing <laughs> process of trial oh, and error. And error. Oh, and Lord. error. Um, but, you know, we look back on it now as kind of a film that doesn't hold up as well by comparison to some of the things that have come since. But it it was a cultural 
event. Like it was a cultural moment. The, the example that I remember is there was a big, I'm, I'm a baseball fan. There was a controversy because in 2004, as part of a promotion, second base for Major League Baseball. Well, as the contrarian, I will stand was up and going say going to I be replaced by a second base with Spider-Man webbing patterns on it. <laughs> I show you my part. the predictable outcry of, why the hell are you doing that? Stop that from ever <laughs> actually happening. But that's the extent of, like, cultural penetration mm-hmm. that this, this film was quite consciously going for. And I think it's interesting to, to look back now and yep. acknowledge... I will be a contrarian once again. ...for what it is now. Divorced <gasps> of sort of you are in for a treat, my friend! A delightful... Um, <laughs> we know. <laughs> you, are in God, for we a, know. you are in for a delightful treat, my friend. Um, and and uh, I think when we see Spider-Man 3... We will see uh, having clung so closely to the first two films, or the first film with the first sequel, what happens when we go in a different direction with the second sequel? Full disclosure, I have never seen Spider-Man 3. (gasps) (laughs) Prepare to stab out Ah! your eyes and fill your ears with blood. (laughs) I do that every day. Now... Now, before we get to, I, before we go all Oedipus on ourselves here, um, we've I've got some movies it. to get through before we get to Spider-Man yep. Three. Next, I was really hoping it was going to be in the next fan. episode. Uh, we are going to complete our first. Oh no! <laughs> no! It's Wesley. It's Wesley Snipes. It's Jessica oh. Biel. Ryan Reynolds. Parker Posey, that guy from Prison Break who was the brother, still go- and WWE still goes to champion Triple H. Did you say that? And Pat Oswalt and Natasha Lyons, and too many characters. I recall enjoying this film in the theater. In- we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that when we yeah, get to it. Yeah. Yep, when we talk about... Over the top. No one, no one here is bad-mouthing over the top. No and one's bad-mouthing over the top. Don't be stupid. Blade Trinity, I, I will say again, I have seen Van Helsing in theaters. I I saw the Sylvester Stallone film Driven. Farewell! Blade Trinity is the worst. Are we stopping? (laughs) I saw... We we have many thoughts that we need to hold on. Probably Sylvester Stallone's bullet to the head for me. I'm still a big fan of his arm wrestling movie. Oh, over the top! Over yeah. the Top's a great movie. No one's going to argue that that's not a great film. Yeah. That's... <laughs> anyway, with that... I, for, yeah, let, let's, let's kill the Remember that, kids, with great marketing comes yeah. great profitability. Bye!